This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Okay, last week, we ran part one of my interview with Michael Devine, uh, former NYPD detective sergeant, uh, singer, actor. And as I said at the time, you know, when Mike came out to Cornwall and sat down face-to-face with me, there was just so much that we talked about. Um, and I just felt like it was worth it to platform his interview in two separate weeks. Um, so you guys could really take it all in. Cause I know it's tough to find, you know, even found time. It's tough sometimes to find three and a half hours, um, of drive time or whatever. So, um, hopefully you guys will hear things a little differently, hear more of it, uh, whatever from this episode. But again, just such a great time talking with Mike. Um, I don't think there's anything else I have to tee up. I, I can honestly say this is um, one of the most notable times that I both laughed and cried in the same episode. Um, talking with Michael, mm, just such a great, such a great dude. Anyway, uh, I don't think there's a lot else I have to tee up. Enjoy. And if you haven't heard part one yet and you're coming in late to the party, go listen to part one first uh, just to set the table a little bit. Um, but if you do listen to this episode first, you're going to want to go back and listen to part one because you could be like, dude, who the fuck is this guy? Where did this all, how'd this all happen? Anyway, amazing conversation. Really enjoyed the hell out of it. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is part two of Michael Devine's profile in Havoc. a bunch of threads I want to pull on, but I got to figure out which one to go with first. Let me go with this. So did you think as you pivoted towards NYPD that theater, showbiz, even music was kind of just not the path? Or was there a sense that did you have any inclination that you could possibly do both at the same time? 
there was definitely an inc- inclination. Oh, there was. Yeah. And now okay. I think the marketing side of me was, was starting to come alive. Because you were a cop and had a whole new yeah. angle, maybe? Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't remember if it was going in or if it took a couple years. I honestly forget if, if I went in with this thought. But I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York City cop with a degree in acting. I'm like, that could be marketable. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I just got to share. I, I had a flashback when I lived in LA. I remember uh, to get into the groundlings, you had to go audition. You had to get a number to go audition for them. And the line would go down Melrose, I think, where the groundlings was. It was just a line of people, all these LA actors, all waiting in line to get their number to go audition for the groundlings. And there was a fucking cop in uniform in line. Uh. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, only in LA do we have cops trying to be actors and get yeah. into the groundlings. But it's, but it was like now then I hadn't joined the military yet at that point. And after I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You can make that play. You yeah. Know? You know, I, I, part of me is rolling my eyes, but part of me is like, I'm the, I'm that guy. Um, no. And why wouldn't you be? And why wouldn't you be? You paid the fucking admission price. Hey, you all could do the same thing. Come join. Come yeah. join. You can come queue up too. There's no limiting principle here. Uh, yeah. And and again, I'm trying to think when that was. If I went in saying, I'm going to, this is, I'm not just going to be a cop, but I'm going to return to acting. It's all going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Just watch. Um, or if the acting came later, because I do remember, actually, I was working with David Zayas. Oh. Um, he was, we were cops together. He was, he quit the NYPD because he got Oz. Right. He was on Oz. Right. He just was up for the Tony Award. Yeah. This past year. Oh, forgive me. He's gonna, I can't remember the name of his play, but he no, just no, was no. up for a Tony Award. Yeah, but, that's right. So I was working with him. In fact, he was doing a he was doing Midnights and he was doing a show called The Beat, I think it was. And we would watch uh we would watch him in the lounge uh uh, with him while he's on the show, and I'm like, this is this is pretty cool. In fact, we were—I remember watching him. We were all watching him uh, on Oz, <laughs> and all the guys going, "Oh, okay, David, we there's a side of you we never saw before." But um, wow. so that did he know that you were an actor? That you had been acting? That you had been out of theater degree? I don't know if I was that open about it. I'm trying to think. I came on in '98. I still remember like taking my rookie squad to see Miss Saigon, which was literally down the block. The Broadway production was down the block from my theater. So I remember even joking. I'm like, let me just go in and just look at their statement for the night and just see uh, you know, how much. Let me just make a few changes here and just, oh, their advertising get a little high. And <laughs> I didn't do that, but it That's was hilarious. still the same company I just worked for. Wow. But What, what um, precinct were you? Uh, Midtown North, okay, which is covers the north side of, uh, from Forty Fifth up to the park. Of all the precincts, uh, I know of all the precincts. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, w- w- did that mean anything to you? Was it, it was that has to be surreal to go? I was just walking these streets. Yeah, it was by design. Um, did you feel that at the time? How cool it was, or that it was by design? That or? was by design. Did you? I mean, because because honestly, that's that's bizarre that you're like. I mean, if you're a rookie cop and you could turn to your partner and go, yeah, you know, I was just working in Cameron McIntosh's office, yeah. you know, and now you're literally like walking by Miss Saigon and yeah. on your beat. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty fucking bizarre. It, it was bizarre. And again, I always joke that I had this identity crisis. And I, of course, I knew at the time I knew everybody. So I knew that everybody, yeah. in, we used to call it on being on campus. Um, but uh, 
if going back to one of my earlier conversations, if you remember, my father's colleague was yeah. commissioner at the time. So I did have my choice of precinct. <laughs> I'm more open about it now, but no, at the I time wouldn't. I didn't tell anybody, but yeah, I, I was able to choose where I, where that's I fat. So you, so you really did think, I mean, even if not consciously, there was a part of you that was like, I'm not done with theater. No. I'm not done with my artistic side. No, I knew somewhere that there there's going to be a crossroads and I didn't know where it was going to be. And I kind of made it, uh, it was a creative challenge to see where, where these two will, will intersect. But yet you didn't want to tell people around you on the job. Not so much the acting. They were, they were cool about my having just worked for management Okay. Um, they thought it was weird, but they were cool. They're very accepting. And cops are weird to begin with. So I was just, right. you know, I, I kind of fit in to a degree. They were just, they're also, it's such a family that they just embrace your weirdness too. It's like the theater. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, did you find that it was, that it was similar to the friends that you made in the theater community, or was there a different dynamic, or was it not as strong a bond? Like, what did you find? It was a much stronger bond because, as close as we were in the uh, in the theater community, we would bond on a show and we'd have so much fun. And then, oh, next week's our auditions again, so we're going to be competing for the role we both yep. want. So yep. there was a little bit of a reset every time, um, and I found the people that. Again, I also I'm not super competitive, but but there 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 were some egos in in that. Sure. Um, especially when I got the part someone else wanted, and vice versa. Um, so with the with the NYPD though, it's like, and you know it. You're when you're how close you get when you're in the trenches with someone, and when there's literally life and death situations, how how well you bond. Um, you you bond and you you're spending eight hours together in a car with someone sure. more than you're spending it at home sometimes and you you truly bond and especially when you hear someone you know calling for help on the radio how yeah. close you'll get there and what it goes how it goes through you it it brings you very close and again I was in a precinct that was it was not high crime we were right. we were very very busy sure and we had areas where you know. Um, it got pretty dangerous, and we were very, definitely in very dangerous situations. And then we all went through nine eleven together, so you you bond very quickly. Without there was never any backstabbing. There's never there's none of that. There's a difference in the bond between positive experiences bonding you. Like I think of like college buddies. We had good times together. There was a bonding that happened with that, and there's the bonding that happens through bad times. Yeah, and that's a different bond, and I think it's a deeper bond. Because it's the life or death business. Yeah. And that and as much fun as you had. And it's funny. This is my experience. So tell me how this, if, if this is similar for you. But I think when you've had a life or death experience bond with people, it's hard for me to bond with people po- and over positive experiences to the same degree of depth ever again. I remember like high school buddies, college buddies. It's like, oh, friends for life. Cause God, we had so many laughs together. This was so much fun. I will never have that degree of fun again ever with somebody. I will only <laughs> because it's because I have, I have bonds that are deeper, not as persistent. I don't see these people very much, but there's a bond on a certain level where I'm like, that's a bond. 
Absolutely. That's a bond. And yeah. and I'll never, and, and it has, we have to go through that together in order to have that bond. And unless I do that, I, I'm never hitting that degree of depth again. I don't right. know. That's me, but does that relate? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I think maybe it's, it's, it's when the stakes are so high and interesting thing, cops, and this may be true for the military too. I, I, I um, was not in the military, you know, was, but, um, oh, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Uh, yeah, please the depth erase of bond. that. No, it's all right. The depth of bond. Yeah. Yeah, I lost my train of thought there. You would have raised no, that. That'd be great. That's no, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Are you good? I don't know where I was going. That's right. That. Here, no, mark it down. No worries. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's fun. I mean, I've never thought of it that way of the different kinds of bonding though that happen. Um, I think there is something very. Um, I think that's one of the major marks of delineation between a civilian. And somebody, and I group military and law enforcement together on this, and somebody in the profession of arms is understanding that distinction. I mean, here, I mean, full disclosure, like, you know, just day-to-day life for me now. I mean, it's great. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. I'm never going to have bonds with people I meet, friends I meet here, right? the way I did. So... And yet you want to, because you're a human and you want to have some degree of social interaction and some degree of connectivity. And it's not a crime. I mean, it's like, okay, you'll bond, you'll find some degree of common ground and that's great. But there's, but it, it'll, you're aware, you're acutely aware of how, not superficial, but just how, how it's not as deep and trusted a connection as it could be. Right. Now I remember what I was going to say. Sure. Um, people look at cops, and I think the military as well. It's just so, I don't know, stoic. And, and you're asked, and it's true to a degree, you're asked to be completely emotionally detached. And you have this outward persona that, as I said earlier, is kind of larger than life. But when you're on the inside, I can't remember, I can't even count the number of times I've seen grown men in full uniform break down crying yeah um over and over i see it all the time um which they would never let the outside no one on the outside would ever see that sure um so when you and i are are looking back at what happened just an hour ago and we were the magnitude of you know we just almost died an hour ago yeah and we both are processing that together. Um, it does. It does. It cr- creates a bond that you can't say uh, we have an equal bond in uh, you know sitting together desk side by side or, or right. just we, we, yeah we did Pippin together. Wasn't that great? Right. It's not the same as someone just tried to kill us an hour ago. That's interesting too because I think there's also that difference between a bond forged trying to build something and a bond forged trying to survive something. Hmm. Wow. I think those are different things. And the first thought that crosses my mind is I'm thinking of, um, I guess I'll preserve some degree of anonymity, but guys in, in, you know, tier one units or very specialized units that have, you know, these immense vetting process 
So bonds that are just welded together in that brotherhood. And then they get out of the military and go to private business and there's falling outs. And there's a sense of, wait, hold on. We used to be in, couldn't have been a more tight knit unit, but the dynamics now changed because now we're trying to build something. We're trying to do a business and make money and establish a, a company brand or whatever. Right. And that's a whole different way of framing this life or death connection that we had. And it's a different thing than when we were just trying to survive and execute a mission. And it's interesting how even then the bonds change and it's because of the dynamic of the, of the stress under which that bond was made. And it's not necessarily better. It's just different. And so yes, we can, we can have that, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's not to demean let's call them frivolous bonds of like, Hey, we're entertained <laughs> together. It's, but there's also, it's a different stressor. It's the, the stress of going, Hey, we built show, a show. We did Pippin badass. <laughs> and there's a stress. There's not distress. But then when there is a distressful thing, it's just different dynamics. And it's interesting how those don't always translate. The brothers you had from distress situations aren't always the same brothers you're going to have in a stress situation. Well said. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking this out loud. I don't no, know. No, it sounds you know. great. And I do. I also don't want to say that, oh, my bonds are better than someone else's bonds. You know, that if someone sure. works in an office, has great bonds too. I don't want to say my bonds are better than his. But, but it's situational it, too. It's, it is yeah. situational. Yeah. And I remember later in my career when I, I was working for the detective bureau out of headquarters, I was working, you know, an office job pretty much. And, and we, I sat next to the guys for 12 hours a day and we created different bonds and, and, but they, they weren't, they weren't quite the same, you know, and especially funny looking back with my, the people I went through nine 11 with even just we're we just passed the anniversary. We all sent each other texts, just, just reaching out, thinking of you today, even here, 22 years later, yeah. to that magnitude that that I wouldn't be forever bonded with with this set of men and women, and I'm sure you've you've been in, in in similar situations where you have that, and you you will always have that. Yeah, and, and um, I want to ask about 9/11 a little bit. I was at the towers that day. Really? On jury, I was at jury duty at 71 Thomas Street. Wow. That morning, I, I worked graveyard shift as a proofreader because I was acting. And I was directing. I just directed my first play. It had opened that weekend. We were dark on Monday. And Tuesday was 9-11. Play never opened again. And that ended my directorial career pretty much because then I never got back to directing. Still? Really? Uh, Well, until now. (laughs) Until I came back. Okay, good. Until I came back now. But but it was... uh, But anyway, but I want to ask you about 9-11 because, yeah, that's... Let's get to that in a second uh, because there's a bunch I I want to talk about with that. But yeah, so... I wanted to ask you first, before we got there, do you remember your first Code 3? I assume that NYPD calls it a Code 3. No, we have uh, 13. 13, is that is that emergency calls, that lights and sirens? Thir- a 13 is an officer, it says officer in need, but it's basically officer down. Okay, all right. So that's that's as high as it can go. Okay. But as far as like uh, uh, an emergency with the magnitude of 9-11, I don't even think we have a code for that. Right, right. Yeah, that was a whole We have levels of mobilizations, and you those might be similar to different types of codes. Right. But 
I don't, we, we don't have a code to even. No, I mean, that, well, that one, I remember Forest Service, I learned after the fact, had to come in and run, and that's where they implemented the ICS, right? And started, first time an incident command system was set up so that everybody could talk, but it was the Forest Service that implemented it because they were the only ones that had knowledge of the ICS and how to integrate oh. multiple responses from fire, police, EMS, military, National Guard, all that, and they could slot them. Um, I learned that when I joined the Army, then we became firefighters, and we started to learn about incident command system and NIMS and all that stuff and how that all that integrates. Anyway, I don't, I don't know if you even were aware of that, but I, we, you were. In fact, you just gave me a flashback. We, I was bouncing around to all different – I had different assignments all that night, but I remember one of them was an incident command center. Where was that? Port Authority? But I remember being in a huge room, and I just had to sit at the NYPD desk. I think it was in its infancy at that it's time. It's like a fusion cell. Yeah, like yeah. putting it all together. It's fucking, okay, we want, I, I, I'm trying to hold, keep my ammo dry before we get to that. But yes, <laughs> um, I guess one first one though is Midtown North. First off, what was the dynamic? So 98, 99, 2000, what's the pickpocketing? I mean, what are you dealing with mostly? I mean, <laughs> But also as a rookie in Midtown North. Yeah. I, it was great. Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, Divine, you got uh, Times Square One. Wow. Times, uh, you're, you're all the other, you know, half dozen rookies in my unit, Times Square too. Time, we each had a block in Times Square and it was the best. Um, you know, and the, and the worst thing you had was, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the street vendors and stuff like that. Or, you know, um, God, there was really not much. Uh, yeah, the problem was uh, I'd be posted in front of like Virgin Records, which was uh, 45th and Broadway at the time. And within an hour, somebody's stealing CDs and I got it. There goes my night. Now I got to go inside oh, and, and process this stupid arrest. Um, but for the most part, it was, it was, it was great. It was like the, the best way to be a cop. Where, what was, so 90, I remember 98 was the year I graduated college and came back to the city. And that was where my mind was first really blown at how different the city was than the city I was raised in. Oh, yeah. And I was like, holy crap, this is like, I can walk everywhere. Yeah. I wore sandals. I was like, what? <laughs> like, this is fucking nuts. Like, yeah. um, I mean, it was, it was wild. What were the hot spots in your precinct? Then was it Hell's Kitchen? Was it just kind yeah, of west? Yeah, we did, we did have a, a slice of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. We, we started, we had everything. It was, it was from Carnegie Hall to the projects. Um, so we, what, which projects, which some ones? along 10th Avenue. Um, okay. 10th Avenue and like, uh, we went, or like, no, no, we okay. only went as high as, uh, I think at that side, 59th street. That's the ones by Lincoln center. There's kind of ones just West of Lincoln center. Right. And there's some, there's still some South of there. Okay. Um, right. those are the proverbial West side story. That's like where West side story took place. Wow. Wow. But we had some along the West side there. I think, and not, not like if we were up, you know, uh, farther north but um some along 10th 11th 12th okay uh but but not no not a lot okay so do you remember your first lights and sirens your first oh my god this is I mean, if it wasn't code 13 or whatever what what was it like your first kind of like adrenaline pumping okay hey shit this is actually the job yeah well for the first God, I don't want to say maybe six to nine months. We were all on foot. We didn't see cars for a while. Gotcha, yeah. So all of us, I remember my first post, and again, I was blessed as a cop. Um, my first post, uh, I was on uh, 57th Street in front of Carnegie Hall. <laughs> oh, my Lord. 
But I just oh remember I was God. with uh, kind of a negative Nelly, and he's uh, Billy Conway. And even though we had nine months in the police academy, we spent the whole night him going, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, just shut up. Just do it. Just stand here and, and we'll take it as it comes. But um, it's a good little waiting for Godot moment. Two cops, two rookie <laughs> cops on the first night out. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, but whereas, say, there was a, a 13 is all the way. That's like a cop right. is down. An right. 85 just means a cop needs help. Okay. Um, it's it could be an emergency, could not be sure. But because we're on foot, I just I do remember just running everywhere, huh. um, even if it's a few blocks away. But the cars would have already been there two minutes. Gotcha. A- afterward, but um, I I do remember running around, and and the some some of the uh, veterans kind of roll in their eyes. They're like, "You don't need to run. You're not going to make it in time." Um, uh, and we, we did see cars. It was. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so weird how the 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 uh, careers are intertwined, or or it's how I view things. Yeah, but yeah. every now and then we would get thrown into a car, and here's me going. It's sort of like the leading man is out tonight, and the understudy gets to go on. <laughs> I remember the first night, all the rookies were in the cars, and we're like, we, I'm like, how did this? It's and again, it's like the Miss Saigon matinee where everybody's sick, and like we got the the C team on, but. Uh, they're all wonderful, but um, we saw cars later, and and it, it was a lot of like, it's it's because it's such a job that you can never say, okay, I I can do, I I understand how this job works because it's so different every yeah, moment, yeah. And, and there's never a time where you can say like, oh, I got this, I I understand this job, but no, it's it's just when you think you do, it's just going to go out the window. Do they still have those posts? I feel like I don't see cops on foot. I mean, maybe around Times Square itself I do, but I don't see them up by Carnegie Hall standing on a a street corner anymore. Well, Midtown North and Midtown South actually still have a theater squad. Okay. You would have thought I'd be perfect for that. Yeah, really. Jeez, Um, yeah. Maybe if I... if. Later, but those were all the salty uh, veterans that had the theater squads. Um, but you, because those blocks, just managing those crowds that come out and then yeah, wait by, because yeah, yeah, yeah. if, if they're waiting by the stage door, they're going to go into the street. So yeah, totally. all the shows had, had, a, had a theater squad. And I think like Carnegie Hall and it depends, but generally the foot post like we had, I think they're a thing of the past. Yeah. Unless, just because everybody's so short-staffed now, those were all um, supplements. How did it feel being a cop? I mean, did you feel fulfilled? I kind of did. Okay. I I really did, actually. I, I really felt in my element. Looking back, I, I don't know that I could do it now. Just because I think it's in a number of ways it's changed, in a number of ways I've changed, but I remember it being very rewarding. And I, it, it was so out of character for me, but yet I felt so at home, um, which is odd. Um, but uh, I, I, I did, I, I don't know how I did it um, mm. in many ways. And uh, like the, the danger angle never entered my mind. Like I didn't, I didn't care about. Um, a danger angle. And it's not from a, a standpoint of bravado. Right. It's just, I really didn't, it didn't, didn't really uh, affect me. Was there, was there gangs? Was there any kind of gang involvement? Was there any kind of organized entity that was 
operating in your AO? Or yeah, no believe way? it or not, there there was because Times Square became a meeting point for every kid in the city. Sure. All the outer boroughs would all just come in, into Times Square. And we, we dealt okay. with sort of, you know, there was the glitz and glamour, but there was there was a, a, a an, an element there that, that uh, you know. What, what were they up to? Was it just meeting or was there actual, were they trying to do stuff there? I mean, it's not a great area to kind of pull off some huge thing. I mean, was it just like swapping dime bags? Yeah, or what, it, what there happens? was a lot of that. It all seems yeah. so innocent now looking back. Yeah, there was yeah. never any... Um, like nowadays, there's, there's these uh, grand sweeps where 20, 20 kids will go into a store. There, were, there really right. wasn't any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it really it seems like crime out of a Charles Dickens novel at this point. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and it kind of was. I mean, that was when the Sex and the City Renaissance kind of was happening in New York, right? And everybody, yeah. I mean, I know just on the civilian side, then we got, we're all looking at each other like, oh, we, we can walk the streets peacefully now like safely yeah like wow we can fucking do anything we can wear nice clothes out <laughs> yeah i mean I, my whole life in the city i never i was always worried about hey make sure you can run in whatever shoes you're wearing outside the house make sure you can move i even had a knife that i used to always have from the time i was like 14 in my <laughs> back pocket because yeah, i was like hey just that. don't know you know i remember the, you remember the old times square boxing club the, no. it's now where the conde nas building is so oh, the wow. old de niro movie the, de niro did a movie called it was a very small independent film in the early nineties, late eighties. And it was, and they filmed it in the, the Times Square boxing club. And it was this gritty, it was on 42nd street itself. It was across from the strip, from the peep show, lay girls and people. Oh, that, so do you remember lay girls? Do you remember that? That it was like right on 42nd street itself, probably yeah. between sixth and seventh Avenue. I think if I had to remember, or maybe, or maybe fifth and no, it had to be sixth. Anyway, it was right across from that. And it was this little staircase that went up to the second floor and you walked in and it was all oh, newspapers wait. across the entire thing. It was a very small yeah, I do remember space that. and they had two rings and it was like, and I used to go box there and I'd oh, always wow. have a knife in my back, in my, in my back pocket because you had every transient homeless prostitute, whatever in that staircase going up and down. Oh, yeah. And then you'd get in there and. You know, they had like the old school, you know, sit up mat, you know, where you hook the the pads onto the bar and you're at an incline or decline. Oh, and that's you're cool. Like in the tank top, <laughs> gritting it out. You know, it was like, it was like, and it was such a vibe. It was, and now I think like Gleason's and everybody else kind of mimics that grittiness, but that was actually the gritty place. That's cool. It was, and it was cool. Now it's the Condé Nast building. So now Vanity Fair is published there and all the rest of it. That but whole block is, figure. That, that whole block is swank. You know, amazing. Yeah. Oh, but, it's like, it's. I there's a lot to be said for when Disney and Giuliani were in charge. It's it's true, and I wish the the creative part of me wishes it hadn't been Disney and he'd instead. <laughs> there was an idea that I want to say I might just be completely making this up. I think I am. I think it was my wish that like all the actors and celebrities that were opposing Disney bonded together because I think if I remember right, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I feel like. I remember hearing Alec Baldwin or somebody saying the Disneyfication of New York or something like yeah. that. If it wasn't him, I apologize. But something to the effect, I thought, what if everybody opposing Disney just got together and said, hey, let's us get a consortium and buy these old porn houses and turn it into vaudeville things. So it's not Disney, but it's something so New York. Yeah. I thought that would be badass, but that's like takes a huge amount of coordination. And I get why that it's just easier for Disney to come in and buy it up and do their thing. And as options go... Not the worst option in the world. Brings in a lot of tourism. People aren't dying. 
Like, fair enough. You know, I can deal yeah. with that. But anyway, I remember that was my little fantasy from that era. That's like, cool. Man, that'd be cool if we had a strip of just vaudeville houses. You know, yeah. that'd be awesome. You know, that'd be such a throwback. And who knows? Maybe we'll get there now with the strike and all that. It'll be, it'll be Disney <laughs> running a vaudeville house. Yeah, right. but, but Seriously. Uh, yeah. Know, or the Colgate vaudeville theater. Yeah. yeah. It'll be some mass market commercialized vaudeville or something. Okay. Let's not delay this anymore. <laughs> 9-11. So you were on duty that day or did you get called in? I was due in for, it was election day and I was due in, I think for like one o'clock. It was, it was a local, right. it was, yeah, I forget. It wasn't a major election. It was, but it did delay the election. It did delay Giuliani. Like he had to stay in office. Oh, remember that? That wasn't the elect. I don't think that was the election. I think it just two months later in November, didn't they punt the November election? down the road because they were like, Hey, we need Giuliani to still be mayor because there's too much shit going on with the cleanup or something. Possibly. I don't remember that. I, I was in a, I, I, I don't think I'm making that up, but I might be anyway. Oh, sorry. I interrupted. No, it's so, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So I remember was, I, I, a guy from my unit called me. We both had election duty at this, and my unit. I was just doing still in Midtown North. I was just doing, we were doing plain clothes, narcotics and um, a street level, but not, not, not like borough level, which is bigger. But um, he called me up and, and, I remember one of my first questions is like, do we still have election duty today? Um, not, not because I'm thinking, uh, then that's, I didn't realize the magnitude that I'm like, what did you know at that point? I had watched it on the news and I remember being, cause I was normally due in much earlier, but cause I wasn't due until one, I kind of slept late. So I was watching it on TV. Wow. Um, and here I'm making light of it, but I, I was beyond freaking out. Were you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of us were. Yeah, I was. It was. I was watching it as as someone at home, like the rest of the world. And Where were you uh, in Clifton? Where did you live? No, uh, I was. It's, when I became a cop, I moved to Long Island. Okay, so I was in Long Beach, Long Island, okay. for like the first fifteen years of being a cop. So I was. I was. I was there, and uh, I, I remember actually. Uh, I saw the, the towers go down on TV. And in my mind, I thought one of them was the Empire State Building because I thought, I guess they were bouncing around, and and I remember thinking that the Empire State Building just fell, and I just, and my brother works down there, and I couldn't get in touch with him. I remember being, getting dressed to go to work. Um, I was going in regardless, but I remember literally I had a cordless house phone, and I remember being in the shower letting the water run over this cordless house phone, trying to still find like my brother and checking in with my mother and, um, wow. and the guys at work. Could you get a signal? No, I don't think I did. Cause I probably wouldn't have taken it, it, it in with, it, in with me. Cause I remember, yeah, remember we, we could, could get signals. We could right? get signals. Really no. hard, yeah. and I don't think I, I remember having a cell phone during nine 11, but I think I just gotten it. So I don't think I was using the cell phone. I, uh, I remember having one down there, but I don't remember when I got that. It was still, that was in its infancy as well. But I remember my house phone in the shower trying to find my brother. And then I got dressed and I went in and I remember it being a really crazy commute because there was nobody on the road. And normally it's, it's back to bumper to bumper traffic. And the the eerie thing was that there was nobody on the roads. I was the only one I saw on, on the Long Island Expressway. It's like the Omega Man. You're like the, oh, yeah. the end of civilization. Yeah, yeah. like yeah, the stand yeah. or something. And then it wasn't Long Beach is is right on the Queens Nassau border, but south. So as soon as I got up, I, I was able to see it 
from like wow. uh, the bridge heading in. And then I got to the precinct and it was just, it was chaos. And we had people that were missing and we had people that were there at the time. And, and did they send people down to Midtown North, send people to the towers yeah. when they were going? Yeah, they were, they were, uh, as it were, like our whole day tour was down there as it was happening. We, they just left their post in Midtown and just went down. Wow. Um, how many and, guys did you lose on that? Our precinct, none. Really? No. Wow. Uh, surprisingly, yeah. Wow. I'm trying to think. The there was the original 23. NYPD lost 23 in total. So the original 23, and then I think Port Authority lost. I want to say 37. Yeah, somewhere. Like um, but we had two guys that I worked with. Both of their brothers were firemen, and they were lost. Mm. And I remember being there for one being told. Um, Jeez. and uh, they sent me to St. Patrick's Cathedral because they were identifying targets, potential targets. Because we 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 didn't yeah, know if this was follow-ons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 100%. Um, so most of my unit went to hospitals waiting for people to come in who never came in. Um, and then I was sent to Times. I'm sorry, I was sent to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, where I was able to to look down Fifth Avenue and I could see it see it there and I, I really wanted to be there but yeah here i'm you know this is i'm, I'm where they told me I, I got there later that day uh i was just bringing all the restaurants were donating food right so my first assignment was bringing food back and forth gotcha so i i got to ground zero that day um trivial question but the first thing that popped in my head is was there a decision in your mind when you were getting dressed of like should I be in plain clothes today or should I be openly identifying myself as a police officer? So, cause that's going to be the job today is like, make sure that people know I'm a cop. Like, did they have you come in in uniform or did you go in plain clothes? Interestingly, NYPD, I know a lot of smaller towns will go in in uniform, but we, we weren't allowed. We had to change at the precinct. So we would always go in in civilian clothes and always change at the precinct. Okay. Um, and I just, uh, I just, you know, I was, we were suiting up. Everybody's um, in uniform. Everybody's like, in uniform. Blues. And in okay. fact, yeah. detectives who've not been in uniform in, in yeah. six years yeah. are, are in uniform. Everybody's in uniform. Um, and I, because th- if anything, we would have, because our day tour was still there. So we would have, need people to backfill the day tour to answer 911 calls, which surprisingly there weren't any. Nobody was calling 911. Really? Yeah. It was, it was the, one of the quietest days, uh, you know, for, for weeks that went on. It was just like no yeah. crime. Yeah. Or people just weren't calling it in. Did you notice that out on the street? Did you notice that like you almost didn't have to police anything? You were just yep. doing emergency Absolutely. stuff? Yeah. There was no, uh, um, it was, we were never bonded like that. Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> we had this local woman, you know, uh, always strung out on drugs, always in trouble, always prostituting herself. And I remember we saw her on the block and uh, she just gave us a big hug. Yeah. So it was a weird when cops and robbers were coming together. It, that, I can't think of a better way to say that. I mean, not being a cop there myself, but that was so much the vibe. Yeah. I mean, I remember being on the subway the next day and everybody, and there weren't that many people on the subway, but those that were, were looking, we were all looking each other in the eyes like, you okay? 
<laughs> yes. Right? And you were like, fuck, did I just move to Wichita? Like, what? I, I'm suddenly in a small town. Yeah. Like, everybody cared about each other, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter who you were, where you were, what you did. There was no class system. There was no nothing. There was just this bond, and everybody yeah. wanted to check in on everybody. Like, holy shit. When you talk about bonds of survival, yeah, like, everybody in the city was bonded at that moment. Yeah, it was... It was- like the nine twelve yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. effect, and I still I, it's it's in us. We're capable of it. But you're right. The subway. I remember someone would sneeze, and everyone could bless you. God bless you. You know. Wow. Uh, yeah. It it was like nowhere else, no other time. But but it it was here. You it had a thousand different emotions going on at once. Yeah. Um, and but but I remember in the first few days there was just this. We did. We didn't think it was over. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Did you even get a day off any time for the next couple months, or did they keep a pretty regimented schedule, or did they task you out? We would no. We would not have gotten a day off for a while. I remember actually my foot. I was directing traffic, and my foot got run over by a car. So huh. I got a couple days off for that. Um. But no, I don't remember. It was months, I think, before we got a day yeah. off. Did, and was everything, were you still looking at other potential sites? Would that continue to be the focus or was everything starting to be directed towards downtown and uh, doing There was a work? time I remember where this was probably, this could have even been the following day. Because my first full day at Ground Zero was that Thursday. But I think it must have been Wednesday. And I forget where I was. I could have been at the precinct. Um, but over the radio, there was a cop yelling into the radio that we have a confirmed bomb in the empire state building. Holy shit. It was a bomb sniffing dog who got a confirmed bomb. And I remember from 54th street, we were all heading there. And I remember saw a friend of mine saying like, Steve, you need to, you need to leave right now. This is a confirmed bomb in the empire state building. It's still going on. And I was calling up my family saying goodbye. Um, it turned out to be nothing, but the bomb sniffing dog did get a positive. So, but I think the cop was just so spooked with what was going on. The way he sounded in the radio, we have, I remember clear as day, we have a confirmed bomb in the empire state building. So I thought, here we go again. Luckily that, that did turn out to be nothing. I mean, I, I can probably imagine, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, yeah, what was going through your... I mean, obviously, you'd never had a jolt like that before on the job, right? No. I mean, how? I mean, not a lot of people live through their final goodbyes and get to talk about them after. I mean, what what was the emotionally like? I mean, what were you... Were you on fever pitch already just because of the recovery and what were you... All the cleanup from 9-11 and the... And the the mindset of like there could be another attack that you were mentally prepared for that, or was there a sense of fatalism? Was you were like, yeah, holy shit! I, I mean, did you feel prepared to go at that moment? I don't know if I would ever feel prepared to go, but I was going. Yeah, you know, and but we still have all these images in our head of of the towers falling, and and uh, um, but I do remember. So oh, I did have. A, so I must have had a cell phone. Because I remember You're walking, calling, yeah. calling, saying goodbye. I, I definitely had a cell phone, yeah, because I remember making a few calls like that. But uh, 
Yeah. What, what were the conversations like, or did you leave messages? I think I left messages. If if I I don't remember the actual conversation. I remember the actual act of calling. I'm sure my mom would have picked up. I don't remember if I if I I might and I I probably wouldn't tell my mom. I'm I'm headed to something. I probably would have said just call to say check in, say I love you, I love you. Wow. It would have been something like that. And I was single at the time, so I didn't have any family or anybody to call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it probably just you know, my mom and a brother would have checked in with them. But um, but I remember very vividly seeing a friend of mine uh, and telling him it's happening again. It's still going on. Um, and then, but I, I don't think we got very far. We probably, I maybe got to 42nd street before it was called off. doesn't take much though. I mean, it doesn't take much to, it didn't have to be a long call to go. I think that was it. And then even if it gets relieved a second later, it's like, wow, oh, I just went to that place. Wow. Yeah. I, and a lot of us looking, we all of us remember that because the, the, the way the cop was screaming. Yeah. It, it yeah, was, yeah. I'm going to ask a weird question. It's one I've asked of a couple of other people at different points, but this seems like a very appropriate place to ask it. In that moment where you thought this, this is it and I'm, I'm headed to my death, was there any even very small flicker of a thought that one of the many reasons this is going to be a tragedy besides the fact that I'm going to lose my life is that I never got to get on stage? I never got to like my, the artistic side, all the gifts that I've had that I've developed that I've spent time in even the seeds of other plans of where my career could go, all the plans you'd had pre nine 11, all that stuff. Was there any thought of like, and motherfucker, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss <laughs> out on that. And, and like, and not, and not like selfishly or anything like that, but just like there's talents that will go unused under, you know, never utilized. <laughs> was there, was it that even a flicker of a consideration in, the, in that moment? I did have to walk by the Imperial theater where I'm like you sons of bitches. Wave goodbye. Oh God. Oh fucking hell. Um, not in that moment. No. Okay. No. In fact, which makes me think, cause it's all such a blur that I wa I wasn't, I was pretty shut out to that because I knew also that, the first like five years of being a cop, I'm not going to get a day off 9-11 or otherwise. Um, so I kind of was shut out to that. I knew that was going to happen later. But mm. I do remember about a year after 9-11 saying, I think at this point, maybe I better start fulfilling some goals I had. Without a doubt. Do you think you wouldn't have gotten around to it as quickly if not for 9-11? Probably not, no. Really? No. In fact, one of the first acting jobs I had uh, was a movie about 9-11. So I'm trying to also get the perspective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was called The Guys, about a firehouse. I was just an extra. But they were looking for cops and firemen to fulfill a uh, funeral scene. Oh, It had to have been a year later. I have to check when, when that was filmed. But... Um, but when I got that job, I mean, I say it's a job. It was an afternoon right. for free yeah. lunch. I remember telling people, I'm like, I, I want to fulfill some dreams here. And then this was, this was on my list. I want to jump to, um, and obviously I'm just going to caveat this for everybody listening. Um, you know, there is the strike going on right now, so we're not going to um, uh, reference shows and stuff like that. 
um, because that's part of the conditions for those of you that aren't in, in the business. That's some of the conditions that the strike is imposed on the profession. So, uh, we'll talk kind of elliptically about some of this stuff in Mike's career. You can check his IMDB page and you can probably figure out very easily which things we're talking about as we talk about them. But that's why I'm going to be somewhat vague as we, as we talk about very specific um, instances in your career. And I want to ask about the big movie about 9-11 that you did because you had a very interesting Instagram post about mm. exploiting method acting techniques on that. And I want to ask about that. But before I do, I just before we leave 9-11 itself and the, the ensuing days, was there any part of you when that 9-11 concert happened? Remember the 9-11 concert? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Was there ever a, a little part of you that was like, this is everything I care about all in one space. This is all the arts, the production scale, and first responders all right here. They're, they're like that's almost your whole life right there on in, right. The one, in one performance. What I saw in that was sort of, remember I said I like sad music. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the catharsis involved or it's just, I don't know. I honestly I can't explain why. But I remember when they took these like when James Taylor sang uh Fire and Rain. Yeah. And it's it's the, I admit I have a dramatic side. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm at the ear. The I don't say drama such a it's kind of a gross word because it's been misused. Yeah. But the the depth of dual meanings when you now take this song with the perspective of 9-11 and how it takes on new meaning i'd love that depth in 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 i don't know literature and art in art in art um so i and i remember when uh, five for fighting john and john andresic when he sang superman I'm like, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. Um, brilliant song. Uh, so I did, remember I, I said I'd see things from the outside in. Like I couldn't sit there getting absorbed in it. I mean, I probably could. Did you watch it or were you there? No, I wasn't there, no. Okay, all right. Uh, in fact, I don't remember, I remember having the DVD of it, but I don't remember when I first saw it. If it, if it I don't think, I, I was probably working. I couldn't get off to huh, see it. Right. Um, probably lying. I don't know when I said, but I remember having the DVD of it, but I, I just remember stepping out and just seeing, you know, this, it was a catharsis and it was the first time a lot of us were able to just kind of, um, like I, I, it wasn't, I couldn't absorb the magnitude of it. Um, I think for at least a week I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, uh, I don't think we could process of it. Not just because I, I was there, but I don't think any of us could process the magnitude of this. So I think that concert, I think also it did a number of things. It put words and music into what we're thinking and then allowed us a moment where we can all just focus on something else. There, there's a lot going on in that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... So, so I mean, correct me if I'm making too much of that concert and its impact on you. 
I guess my question is, what was the impact on you? Was it inspirational? Was it something that kind of gave you a bit of a landmark of like, that's pretty fucking cool. And that kind of identifies a bunch of things that move you and trigger you. Or was it kind of like, I have these thoughts in passing, but it really didn't make that much of an impression. Like it didn't change your outlook. The concert itself didn't change your outlook that much or, or make you think of your own talents and what you could do with them. Like that, that ship had already sailed because of nine 11 itself. Not so much the concert. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I didn't, Think of it, I didn't put myself in the art watching it. I really looked at it as a, a, like I think a good song or a good piece of art can make you cry. And yeah, I can't always, even going back to like as a kid when my father died, I couldn't, I, I froze up. Yeah. I don't express my emotions very easily. Although which is clearly untrue as I teared up a little bit talking about some of the stuff. But I think maybe I'm now in better, better touch. But it allowed us to sort of, break that window and let other people speak for us. Um, and I can relate and see myself in that. Um, especially when it's, I, I think it's beautiful when a song that you know, and is familiar mm-hmm. takes on new meaning. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a, it's a form of abstract art. You yeah. see whatever you're thinking in the moment and it helps you process whatever you're feeling. And um, that's, I didn't, like I said, I didn't see myself in any of that. Um, I did see myself in our national anthem singer. And not because he got very popular. Daniel Rodriguez was, you know, cops and firemen were all the rage back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Daniel Rodriguez was singing the national anthem everywhere. And he got so big that he left an opening as the national anthem guy in our ceremonial unit. So this is probably oh three maybe? No, oh two. So about a year after, I'm like, you know, I I can sing. Maybe uh, maybe I should audition for the national anthem guy. Had you kept up your voice lessons? Not really, no. Okay. No, but I kind of you felt like it was muscle memory, like you could- yeah, muscle memory. And I was always singing in the car, and I, I feel like I, I could still, still do it. And to a degree, there's you, 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 you get a foundation, and you can kind of move from there. Yeah. Um. So I, I started as the, uh, I, I, it was the first way I was able to merge the two careers, and I thought this is an interesting way to kind of, uh, not just to take advantage of what I you know, can contribute. And I also thought it was kind of fun. So I, <laughs> if those could see the look I'm getting right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of what that must've meant. Um, how did it feel to suddenly sing the anthem? And I mean, because on top of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also kind of outing yourself as a singer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was embarrassed by it. Were you? Yeah. That was the predominant emotion. It wasn't. No, if I was that embarrassed, I wouldn't have done it. But I was outing myself to a degree. Um, the Again, the guys, cops are so weird in that they're so supportive. They'll make fun of the shirt yeah. you're wearing. Yeah. And, you know, if, I, if your hair's out of place or you're wearing weird shoes, they'll make fun of you all day, every day. But you, something like this, they're just supportive. Um, 
and they still are. It's so it's so weird. Um, but they were genuinely, for the most part, I got a little ribbing, but um, they and and some of it just was it was a, it was a no no big deal. It was nothing. Um, but uh, and so, most of them just thought it was kind of cool. But we had like bagpipers and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. honor guard. And so it was just, I felt like I was no different than they were. It was kind of just all, you know, it's, and there were so many ceremonies at the time. Sure. On the positive side, how did it feel? Did it feel ennobling? Did you feel even more fulfilled? Did you feel like, holy crap, there's this whole dormant part of myself that now is suddenly being resurrected? Yeah. It, in the beginning, it felt like that. Um, and I also thought, like, I, not to sound like a jerk, but I got a good voice, and I, yeah. which I worked hard for. It's nice to be able to do something with it. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of, eh, hopefully, it's not as egotistical as it sounds, but there was part of like, look what I can do. You didn't know I could do this, did you? Yeah. Um, but again, that's no different than the, the great bagpipers and the, the guy that plays the taps on, on the trumpet. Um, it's just, it's a, it's another side. I always love that about cops. Because, again, I, the, 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 we're supposed to be uniform by, by design, by definition. We're supposed to be uniform and there's no personality. But I got to see the personalities. So I love when you, you know, you, this faceless entity that stands on the corner I know that he's the world champion foosball player. Nah. Nobody knows that. Or I know that yeah. he, uh, he, he teared up watching that uh, surveillance video of the, of the guy getting robbed or something like that. And, or, um, so for me, it wasn't, it was just uh, as quirky as the rest of them. And, and they, they were cool about it. For the, for the most part, they were, they were cool about it. This thought's coming to me, so I don't know if it came to you or if you processed this at a different time, but with you starting to slowly starting to merge these two different endeavors, did you start to change how you thought about art and where its place was in society, what role it played? That, hey, this is this has a lot of not just therapeutic value, but and I'll, let me couch this with some context of, of my particular thing with this. I've talked about this before on the show, but I was very bothered after nine 11. Like when I watched MTV, I remember like the next day or weeks or something. I can't, I can't remember, but sometime thereafter, I remember going, boy, I could really use a pick me up. And I went to MTV and we had no national vocabulary to ennoble us in this moment. I remember they played John Cougar Mellencamp's Pink Houses, which is a song I love, has nothing to do really with America or going, go us, or hey, stiff upper lip, or go get them. They played, you know, uh, Born in the, in the USA. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, okay, but that's actually an anti-war, you know, song. <laughs> um, they played um, Live, who, a band I absolutely fucking love. They played their song, Overcome. I remember but, that, yeah. but then it's like but that's overcome. That's a defeatist song. That's not like <laughs> uh, go get them. Like, and I was, and I don't need like you know Brett Michaels jumping off an amp and and doing that. Like, I don't need to be some aggro like ah go America. But it was like we have no vocabulary. We been so ensconced in Vietnam era counterculture anti authoritarian stuff that there's no vocabulary for us when we've been properly attacked 
to respond culturally and go, this is who the fuck we are. Mm. And it's one of those reasons I think so many people glom onto Viking culture mm. and Lord of the Rings. And like, I think even to one of my favorite movies of all time, Zulu, when the British are surrounded by the Zulus and the Zulus are doing like their horrifying war cry and the Brits are getting scared and they say to the Welshmen, sing, sing, damn you. And it's uh. like, and it's like they found their, and it's these, to, to my American ears, it's like these corny British hymns, but it's their backbone, it's their culture and they're standing behind it and that's what fires them up to fuel off the attack. And I was like, we don't have that. I mean, we do somewhere in our catalog, but I was like, but where the fuck is it? I don't know where it is. And to me, I mean, I now look at this with the benefit of hindsight and go, well, I'd like to fucking create some. Yeah. I'd like to fucking have some. Yeah. We should have something in our cultural arsenal to go, this is who the fuck we are. And that's, I think, why so many people love hip hop. Hmm. Because it's unabashedly, this is who the fuck I am. Now, sometimes it's all about me, whoever the rapper is, as opposed to us as a community or as a, a civilization or a country. But I think we all respond to that. We all want our war cry. We all want our ennobling anthem. I say this to somebody that sang a song, <laughs> anthem, right? Um, from chess. Not like he wrote it, but still, <laughs> but I mean, still, I mean, you, you, and, and admittedly, you talked about Superman and John Andresik's song and all that, which also was on your first album, yeah. right? Um, it looks to, so I'm saying that I'm putting my thumb on the scale of where, why I'm asking this question. Okay. It seems like, there was a part of you that was triggering and, and cueing to, Hey, we should have some anthemic totemic ennobling songs, cultural that we can stand behind that, that is truly for the Sentinels for the, you know, for you know, like, there's something that's, this is who we are at our best. And I can sing to that and I can identify that and I can give voice to that. Right. Am I making too much of this or is that, is any part of that what you was going through your mind or something that you were kind of finding for yourself? I was once in a while I'll feel creative. Like we all, that impulse we all get. And I feel like I want to create art if only for the therapeutic angles of it. Um, and I did that. I, and I'm not a songwriter, but I wrote two songs on the first album. One of which I don't think I mentioned it's called waiting. And it was just about the period in the days after 9-11. Like you listen to it, you won't know what it's about. But mm-hmm. um, it's about the missing posters yeah. up on the walls and just this period where there was actually some hope. Like they're just yeah. buried right yeah. under that rock. So that waiting is about that period. Um, so I, not to, I can't disagree with that, but I think... Like I said earlier, I loved finding dual meaning in songs that already exist. Even Born in the USA, it's not intended to it's intended right. to be an anti-war song, but somebody I think is going to twist those lyrics into yeah. something that makes sense for them. I mean, even like the Billy Joel song he sang at the concert, the night the lights went out on Broadway. Yeah. Miami Sir. We all we all looked at the New York skyline, but that song's about Miami. But I'm going to make it into whatever I want in this yeah, moment. Yeah. Or I'll create it. So I I think there was a little both going on. Because I only, and I can only see it through the perspective of my own eyes. But I was compelled to make and find catharsis in what others have made. 
It seems like, I mean, again, I'm not trying to make too much of it. It, it does seem like that's a theme though in your work. Conscious or otherwise, but it, it does seem like there has been like, you are very forward. Isn't the right word. It's, I don't mean to make it sound that aggressive, but you're, you're very forthright and unabashed in who you are and therefore what deserves to have some degree of poetry stated about it. And that's essentially what it is, right? I mean, yeah. You're, you're, you're up trying to, you, there's a part of, I think all of us that wants to be poet laureate to some of these experiences and some of these lifestyles. And I feel like that's a lot of what you've done is try to give voice to that because there wasn't a cohesive, there might be a song here or a song there, but it wasn't a cohesive sense no. of like, who the fuck are these guys and why yeah. is this important, right? And I feel like both albums have that going on. But you tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not trying no, to make too I, much I, of it. I, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. It was... Some of it are just songs I liked, but they're 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 pulled, and we'll get into it, I'm sure. But Sentinels took me ten years, and for a number of reasons. But one of them was because you know I'd go six months without really looking for a song, and then something in my life would happen, and I'm like, now I have a song for the album. I have the next song is coming from wow. this, from that. So I do. I I, I am. I often, I feel like I step in and out of myself so often. And that seems incongruent to the question, but like it does, this is really a good therapy session, but um, <laughs> like I said, I, and to a, to a fault and I don't like it in myself, but I, I do detach a lot and I see things almost as if, you know, like a director takes his fingers and makes the frame. I see the world sometimes through that. Um, you reminded me of something earlier and, if you had asked, you know, how the cops thought of me when I first got there. Yeah. And we, I remember all of us being in the lounge at lunch and everybody's kind of just talking. And uh, I was describing, I'm like, God, there's just Volkswagen commercial now. And it's, it's to, uh, I don't think they knew the song, but it's, it's to Nick Drake's song, Pink Moon. And it's just these kids in a Volkswagen that show up to a really loud party and they all look at each other. Um, and they decide just to continue driving and skip the party. And I, I think, remember that. I think yeah. it's just a beautiful commercial. And I, between the music and then the, the sentiment, and I was describing this to the guys, and they all looked at me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what happens next? Were there explosions? <laughs> um, and it was just like, and it was just, and I, I was just sort of like, and it was just a really beautiful commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but they, nobody got what I was saying. They threw a tampon at you, or like, all right, that's yeah. enough of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm different in many <laughs> yeah. ways. But they weren't. No one. They were just like, okay, Mike's a little weird. But, but that's kind of it, though, right? That's the point. To be an artist in the profession of arms, it's a weird thing. Yeah, because there is going to be a part of you that also you you can't be that if you're always in it. There are, are going to have to be moments that you pull out and look around, take stock make mental notes, get inspired, and then go, shit, people should know about this, whatever it is that you're capturing, you know? I think that's, um, and what's funny about it, 
Funny is probably an inadequate word, but what's unique about that is that everyone, even the most jockey of the most jock, wants that. Hmm. We all want to be the subject of the bards. But you need a bard. Right. You know? And it's and it, and you need those people that have that artistic flair that can step outside and look. And I guess it's just towards what end is that bard doing their work? And yeah. I wonder, you know, I mean, what's I mean, this is not to sound all meta or sound self-congratulatory, but I think that's also what's beautiful about veterans in the arts in general is that I think a lot of times the arts do get insular and they do get incestuous. Yes. It does become a very closed loop. Oh, and it's God, like, yeah. motherfucker, like there's all these stories out here, dude. And from the profession of arms over the last 20 years, that's a pretty fucking robust ecosystem to mine stories and things worth paying homage to. And you, yes. but you need people that can actually walk that walk, talk that talk, and appreciate the nuance of those experiences and therefore communicate them in a way that others will appreciate and understand, right? More than right. And it, 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 and it actually connects a lot of what we were talking about earlier. We've seen things from the inside that the writers of a, the yeah. latest cop show won't ever see. And uh, why not turn to this resource to, to share these, this, yeah. this insight? Yeah. You know, the good and the bad. Um, I often, I remember at 9-11, I was feeling guilty because I would look up. Actually, it's, it's gross the way I, I, this perspective. I'm like, look at these lights and the smoke. Like, this is a Steven Spielberg production. Well, yeah. And I remember feeling dirty thinking that. It is funny, though. When it happened, it felt like a movie. Yeah. It really did. It was like, we're so numb to it because we're used to big blockbusters. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. I mean, that's not an unnatural thought, I think, in this day and age. I mean, this is 23 is obviously different than 2001, but still, it was, yeah. you know, we knew enough. It's funny you talked about the cell phone on 9-11. I just got to reference this, but I, I remember when I was running from the buildings when the first one cracked, I think. No, it was when they, I don't know if you ever heard of this because you were uptown at, at that point, but at, when I was staying there on 71 Thomas Street, there was a cry that went up among the crowd. And, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of people packed into that, you know, Suddenly the streets felt claustrophobic, but not yet because we didn't feel the danger. But somewhere the cry went up, they're pulling the plane out. And that's what triggered the panic, at least around us. Sure, sure. And then we all turned and ran. Oh, wow. But they kept going, they're pulling the plane out, they're pulling the plane out. I was like, I don't see anybody pulling it, but okay, I don't know. I never, to this day, I've never heard anybody talk about that or where that came from or why somebody thought that. But it, but th- then that's that was my first time ever in a mass panic. Yeah, where I was like, "Holy shit!" Now hundreds of thousands of people are all moving as one body. But to your point about the cell phone, or just your, relating the thing about the cell phone, that was when there was a thunderclap, and it was all the electronics that hit the ground. And I, I've talked about this on the show, so I won't. I, for those that listen regularly, I won't bore you with it again. But, but for me, I was like, my thought. Still, my head was still in pre nine eleven mode. Yeah, I was like, "When did we suddenly get all these electronics?" I had a little beeper, but I was like, "But all these, they, it, like, all is one. Like everything dropped, 
And it was just a, a one big cacophonous clap. Right. And I start, as I started running, I started scooping up phones because I was like, well, they belong to people. These are people's, like, if somebody dropped their phone, wouldn't you pick up their phone? Yeah. And then at some point, I remember going, wait, I, I think I'm really supposed to be running, though. Like, no shit. Like, actually run. Jeez. Stop picking up the fucking phones. Yeah. And Jeez. that was my one good deed that day is I scooped up, like, three or four phones. And the next week, I walked up to Radio Shack or something on 86th and Lex. And there was a thing where you could turn in. Oh, I think for 9-11, I think it was because of 9-11, they, if I remember right, they were like, you could turn in stuff and we'll hunt down the owners or something. And the people got their phones back. Wow, that's And crazy. I was like, oh, hey, I saved four people's phones. But it was like, but it, that mo- I just remember that moment of scooping up phones going, at what point do I stop scooping up phones and start focusing on the fact that I'm literally in the shadow of this building that I think a plane is coming out of? It wasn't. And in fact, so- they just moved us up a couple blocks and then set up a new barrier. And then eventually we stayed there until the building cracked. Then we rushed up Ugh. to Canal Street. We went from White Street to Canal Street. And then Canal is where we stayed until both buildings came down. And it was probably manned by Midtown North guys because the cops were all along that barrier. And that's when, after the second building came down, you know, everybody, uh, there was a construction crew working on Canal Street, which really isn't that dissimilar from Canal Street to 2023. Um, But there was a construction crew there and they all started yelling, union, union. They're like, everyone with a union card, let's go, we're going in. And the cops were like, no, you're not. Don't go anywhere near there. And it was like, and it didn't become a fight, but it was definitely like, in fact, it was, it was a very surreal fight because the union guys were like sobbing and crying, going, let us in. And the cops were sobbing and crying, going, you can't go in. Wow. And there, it was almost like a fight of hugs. It was like, I love you too much. I'm not going to let the, I, we got to go get these guys. No, I love you too much. You can't go. It was so weird. That's crazy. That's right? amazing. Yeah. It was so bizarre. And, but to that, at that point, it was just trivia, just two 9-11 veterans talking about it. But at that point, I, I still thought it was a bad pilot. I didn't know. What yeah, f- me too. The first one, I, I, even the second, even I the second one though. I, I like at the moment when the buildings came down, I just was like, this is an imme- immensely tragic event of one fucking retarded pilot. Like, how do you not know those buildings are there? I was mystified. I was like, what yeah. the fuck? And it was only walking home hmm. that like, I remember I was on green street. I was coming up through Soho. I was going to have to walk the length of, and everybody was like a refugee crisis. It was like a mass migration. Like everybody was on the right. sidewalks. The streets were all clear. And, but everybody was masked on the sidewalks, walking back uptown or wherever, and there's no subways. And everybody's walking, and there were all these cars parked in Soho with the doors open and the radios were on. So as I walked past, I'd hear little snippets and all this, and I just was focused on walking, walking, walking. Finally, I stopped and listened for a second, and they were going, oh, the Pentagon. And I'm like, oh my God. At the Pentagon, I'm like, why would, would you ever talk about national news? When right. the World Trade Center just came down. This should be the only story people are talking about. Why the fuck does anybody care Ugh. about what's happening at the Pentagon? And then I kept walking. And Ugh. then finally, then I heard something else. And then I was, and finally, by the time I was about to leave Soho on Green Street, I think I stopped this car. And then I was like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Wait, huh? And that's when like it all clicked. And then I was like, holy shit, we're at war. This is war, man. This is like, this is it. <laughs> I'm know? only laughing because I was exactly like you. I remember like, what's going on at air traffic control? I thought this is on them. And then I was on the phone with my friend from the unit and he's, <laughs> he's had to explain it to me. He's like, no, no, this is, 
this is intentional. And he said, wow. bro, this can start a war. Wow. So I, that he caught me up because he was a little more savvy than I was. Yeah. And I, I guess because we were watching at home, I don't know if I, we must have known about the others, but, but I remember funny, we, we both thought this could start a war. I did. What did you think? What was your takeaway professionally and emotionally afterwards? I mean, did you, were you pissed? Were you sad? What, what was your, what was your, how'd yeah. you feel? Uh, to be honest, it's, uh, I didn't feel much of anything. Hmm. I didn't, and I think that's what led to a lot of issues later. I remember just completely shutting down. I didn't feel anger. Wow. I didn't feel anything. Um, again, I didn't, I don't remember crying. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, and it's not a good thing to do. Because all of those emotions went somewhere. And I think it was probably five years later they came out. But In what way? You, In what way did they come out? Oh, uh, it. I was uh, severely depressed. And I, I think all the things that, and I wonder if it was happening to all of us, and I think it was, all of the things that I swallowed, I, I think of it like bubbles in a beer glass or something that, you know, everything eventually will rise to the yeah. surface. And, and I completely shut down. And I, it wasn't by design. I didn't say to myself, I need to do my job, so I need to, to shut down. But um, if, if that was a, a one. It was, because I remember where I was. I had been promoted to sergeant, and I was working in transit. And it didn't help that I was working underground on midnights. Oh, wow. But I got severe depression. And... And I started drinking really heavily, and it, it was a terrible combination. And a lot of those feelings I, I, I had buried started to come up. And I remember a lot of the imagery that I kept seeing, I, I did started to replay in my head. A lot of the stuff that I saw just started all coming back. And I think it with the depression was bringing out the darker side of me. And then th you throw uh, alcohol into the mix, and it it got it got really bad. It was it was you know I, I I wasn't suicidal per se, but I wanted everything to stop. So I remember I was a sergeant in transit, and as a sergeant, you got the car, so you're you're driving around. And I was a, a, a task force, so we had almost all of Manhattan. I wanted to stay in Manhattan, so that's why I went to transit, and. Uh, I needed everything just to stop. I needed a break from it all. So I remember if, if like a dangerous job came over the radio, I would say, no, tell the unit to disregard, I'll handle. And I was alone in the car. So I was driving around, and this was a lot of self-unconscious. Uh, I didn't really, I wasn't saying I'm on a suicide mission or something like that, but the depression was just so bad, I needed a break. So I was actually looking in hindsight, I see this, but I was probably looking to get hurt. Just, to, I wasn't looking to die. I was just looking to get hurt to get, uh, to get out of it all. So that what you'd go on leave or something for medical yeah. reasons. Yeah. 
yeah, without I, loss of face or anything like that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, I was picking up and I wasn't, like I said, I didn't expect to die at these jobs, but I'm like, I'll handle this. Or, you know, maybe I was, I don't know. But, uh, I know we jumped, this is, oh, uh, one to, I always say it was about five years later, but I'm trying to think when it, when it really did surface, I got promoted in 03 and not, not that it matters, but it was, it was several years later, but a, a, a darkness totally took over. It was, it was really bad. It was, it was, you know, and I, again, I was completely single, completely, when, you know, when you're single, you spend so much time in your own head. Yeah. And, um, especially on midnights and I'd go days without seeing the sun. And I think all the stuff that I swallowed on 9-11 started to come up and I, I yeah, I, I, it, 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 it got pretty dark and I wanted to take myself out. So I do remember... Uh, calling, uh, the NYPD has like a third party where like, if you go to the job and I don't know if this is true or not, but if you, you tell your boss, look, I'm struggling with depression, right? They're like, great. Give me your guns and you're now modified and you're you're on the desk. But the NYPD is great. They have a, a disinterested third party organization called PAPA, P-O-P-P-A, police officers providing peer assistance. And I called them up and I was like, this is what's going on. And I'm just thinking, I could use a, maybe a little therapy. Um, and they listened to it, and they were like, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. No problem. So uh, they gave me, they stopped the clock. They were, they were, it was when I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of looking to crash the car, or I'm looking to uh, wow. respond to a, a very dangerous job by myself. Hoping that, uh, wow, you know, I can go out with a little, little, little valiancy, but val- valor. But uh, they were like, "Yeah, why don't you come with us?" So, what did that mean when they say "come with us"? Did they <laughs> take you to a facility, or what do they do? No, they actually, I did. I, I did. I did spend overnight. They just wanted to make sure, like, what level is this guy? Yeah, is he sure. really far gone? And I remember that it's when I say it's peer officers, they have peer counselors who work in the NYPD and they volunteer and they man the clock. And so this guy came out, we met at Starbucks and, uh, I told him all the things that's, that are, that's going on. And, and, uh, he he's making phone calls and they, uh, they call it blue line, which means like, we're going to, we're going to call the NYPD and tell them you're out sick. We don't have to tell them why you can tell them whatever you want. You're, you're friends, but you're not going to work tonight. Um, I called up and it's like my appendix just burst. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Um, and they were like, okay. So <laughs> th- it was three or four months of very deep therapy. Um, were you out off the line? Off, were you- well, I, yeah. The next day I'm wearing. So it had to be, you had to come up with the appendix burst because it needed to be something big enough to justify being exactly. out for a while. Okay. Yeah. They gotcha. told me you're probably going to be out for three or four months. Oh, wow. Holy um, shit. It's actually a great program. That is a great program. Yeah. Yeah. I was really thankful to them. And, uh, and also, I remember when when the guy came, he's like, let's just, you know, let's go back to your apartment. And there were like beer bottles everywhere. Um, and I put, I was in such good shape from the police academy and I was turning 30 on 9-11, so I'm going to be in great shape. And then over the next few years, I put on like probably 30 pounds. 
drinking really heavily and all of that just plays off itself and yeah. then throw in the midnights and the depression and it was a terrible terrible period but i'm so grateful to them they again i had group therapy with other cops who were in the similar situation um they uh set me up with a great uh, therapist three times a week with him. And I was, it was really kept busy. It wasn't like I'm now home with the life of Riley. Right, right. It was, every intention was to get better, get to the gym. I was able to lose some weight, stop drinking. So it was, it was a definitely a period to, to rebuild. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, so that was, and then actually I went back and uh, thankfully got out of transit. It just didn't suit me. I was, um, again, I wanted to stay in Manhattan, but they make you leave the borough otherwise. So I, I went to a different bureau because um, I didn't want to, I want to say Manhattan. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine got me a position in the detective bureau. So I was now above ground and, and doing some things that I like. So that, that was, it's all coming together. That was oh, six or oh, seven. Wow. So you were a detective for most of your career. Yeah. More wow. than half. Yeah. So let's back up. So when when you were going on the, I got just got to ask when you were going on those calls yeah. by yourself. Yeah, how'd that work out? I mean, <laughs> my God! I mean, considering what you were doing, I mean, did it get hairy? Did it? Or, it didn't, unfortunately. Wow, yeah, really? I, I lucked. There's somebody. I, I guess I have a guardian angel over yeah. my shoulder, but uh, um, I mean, did you actually go in and like you're trying to you're trying to stumble into danger, and you actually cleverly and you know, wisely and trickily solve the whole thing. And it's like, you're super cop and you're like, God, I was trying to mess well, up. I know you never know what, when it comes over the radio, you don't know what degree. And also right. it's weird for a transit sergeant to be taking a job from the pre, the local precinct. Right. But I would come over and say, look, I'm right there. So why don't I take it there? They can stand down. And it, it, it was very unorthodox. Um, but I, again, I had a guardian angel on my shoulder. So I, I think I was going to domestics, which I had no business going to Wow, things like that. Um, and there weren't, there weren't a few, I wasn't doing this nightly. There's was probably three or four. Okay. So I was, I was lucky. Did they get physical or did you no. mitigate? Wow. No, I wow. just went yeah. hearing the type of job that it was over the radio. And if it, and if it was really heavy, they'd send backup units anyway. So it was, um, it was, it was actually it was a calculated risk. It yeah. was a calculated risk. Okay. Um, you know, and I wasn't looking to start anything or I just, I'm like, I, I just, I can't even articulate what it was, but I remember telling the therapist, like I needed to stop the clock. I just needed this to end. Um, I, I, I and again, but I say it wasn't suicidal. I don't think it came to the, that surface. Maybe I was. I don't know. But I remember wanting to crash the car. But I thought maybe that would just you know be the injury I needed to. Wow. For, to uh, but I, I needed to stop because it was going very fast downhill. When you got moved to Detective Bureau, did that ever resurrect? Did any depression ever come back? It did, uh, but not to that degree. Okay. What triggered it? Um, probably, you know, you would actually now looking back, what triggered it was, uh, I got dental work and they gave me a prescription for something uh. really heavy. 
Uh, I Dor- uh, Percocet, one of the, one of their narcotics. Yeah. And it gave me, Jesus. they gave me a prescription afterward. I get a root canal or something. Wow. Um, but it gave me such a low afterward and I couldn't shake it. Fuck. Yeah. And Fuck. I would never, and I was never a, a, into pill. I did beer, if anything. I was never into, right. into, into, right. into pills or anything. But it was this prescription. I, it started with a D. I forget what the pill was, but it uh, it gave me such a, a low afterward. And he, they gave me a really like two weeks supply. And then when I was done, I was just like in this cloud of darkness. And then when I went back, it wasn't as severe. I just went back into counseling right, and group right. therapy and things like that. And, um, but it, it, uh, it was, it was, it was bad, but not as bad. Um, I'll, I'll ask a very targeted question that maybe just doesn't apply here throughout the darkness. Was anything about your artistry able to help? Were you still able to do the national anthem? Was, was, did that even play a role? Was it like, was there any flicker of light? Did it give you any sort of oasis away from the day to day? Yeah. And it's funny. And it, when it happens, you have no, it's no perspective, but looking back, especially as I'm thinking out this timeline, I really found the thera- therapeutic power of music and I really dug into that. And it's funny, it goes back into like, I play these other roles and I can, I can be someone else. But I think also with music, I can, I can use that as a form of therapy and, and get rid of some of this bottled up emotion. Um, and I, re- I found that that really helped. Um, so I was, I was putting together, actually I started recording and I started putting together some, uh, that was where the kind of the, the first album came, it came about. from that. It came from the dark period. Yeah, it did. Cause that I, I was finished. That was 2011. So I, looking back it, 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 I don't know if it took that long. Like the, the reason why, like I said, it took 10 years, but then that was maybe three or four years. So it was, it was during that period. If, the first one was, yeah, because I remember I wrote that song "Waiting," and I was still fresh. The nine eleven was uh, was wow. still fresh in my mind, and um, so yeah, I think I think I turned to music more than anything. And even when I was doing the national anthem, mm. it was it was at you know funerals and memorials, and it was still yeah. in those years. So my national anthem was more of a ballad than an anthem. You know, I I did it very kind of somberly and. Uh, I remember being told, Mike, it's it's an anthem. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lep it up a little. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, uh, it was still everything was just very everything was just somber. What was your beat as a detective? What 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 kind of cases were you handling? What did you get moved to? Oh, I'm not I'm not proud. Uh, it was it got very cushy after that because a guy that I went to the academy with, he was helping me through that period. He's like, look. If you want to get to the detective bureau, you can come with me. I do internal investigations. So I started with them in the, we call it the chief of detectives investigations unit. And it wasn't like internal affairs, which looks at, it it was a lower level. We looked at uh, internal violations. You broke the NYPD rules. Whereas internal affairs looks at you committed a crime. Yeah, Yeah. gotcha, gotcha. So 
we would go and make sure they're not wearing white socks with their uniforms or oh they must have fucking hated you they, i was see I, I didn't want to be doing it so <laughs> i was pretty cool like i if i had to you know in, in, uh, inspect the squad i would call up and say just want to make sure somebody's there right now so i wouldn't go in and want to surprise them yeah i'll just say just want to make sure you're there and, and i even say are you in the midst of anything big right now okay so that way they'd get their memo books gotcha. up to date and this um i, I was pretty fair-minded again because it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. Yeah. But um, it was a branch of the chief of detectives office. And they started looking at my reports going, wow, this guy can kind of put words together, which is rare in the NYPD. He can string together words to form a sentence. Hmm. Um, so I never did time in the squad. They, they uh, brought me into the, the, I left inspections and they brought me into the chief of detectives office proper so I started doing, uh, we call it the operations coordinator. So sort of with him, you know, with him over my shoulder, I would, uh, coordinate any internal, internal communications. Um, you're almost like chief of staff for him. Yeah. Almost. Actually it really was a, at, at that point, the detective bureau, it was big, but it wasn't as big as it became because it, it merged with. Organized Crime Control Bureau, which had, oh wow, uh, okay. you know, the organized crime and, and yeah. narcotics and things like that. So the Detective Bureau at the time was just numbered the, the precinct squads, but it, we merged later, and it got much bigger. So it it, it um, got a lot harder. But back then, it was I was doing his mail, his correspondence, and he they used to joke, "Oh, a piece of paper came in. Give it to Mike. You know, anything. We're gonna we're gonna solve crimes. You can." Oh, fuck. Answer this letter from the public yeah, 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 and, yeah. and get the chief to sign it. Um, it. It definitely, and I was there for 13 years. Wow. So it, a lot of, it was most of my career. Wow. Yeah. Did it satisfy you? Did it fulfill you? It did. Why? It's, well, it's, it's felt, it's sort of like the grandparents watching the kids. Like I get to, See, do the fun stuff, but then when they start crying and puking, I get to give them back. Whereas I got to see everything that was going on throughout the city, um, but without having to do the dirty work, without having uh. to wrap around the clock and and uh. and go to the autopsy in the morning. And uh, so we would cultivate the information that was happening throughout the squads and give it to the chief, so he was only aware of the important things. Um, I got to see everything as it was happening in real time, all the the big stuff, the little stuff. It was, I got the chief of detectives perspective while being a sergeant. Gotcha. It, was, it was, and it was as nine to five as mm. a detective sergeant can be. So it was, I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't, I didn't pay my dues. Do you feel that way? To a degree, yeah. Because most, the path into the detective bureau is generally a police officer who does a great job and they bring him into the squad and then after a year and a half, they give him his gold detective shield. Um, whereas a sergeant takes a test it's just police officer, a written test to sergeant. Right. And then I just happen to laterally transfer in 
to the detective bureau. So I never really uh, paid my dues and became a detective. I went right to a detective supervisor. Is there extra schooling they give a detective? Do you go oh, for yeah. an extra course? Tons. Okay. And, I, and I got a lot of that, too. I okay. went to the homicide courses and the criminal investigations course. Um, they get a lot of... Well, it's, it's I guess any specialized units within the NYPD, you got specific training, and, and okay. but they got a lot of good stuff. In fact, the homicide course is, is renowned, uh, and mm. it's about three weeks, and it was just amazing. Really? Yeah, so Why? I got to do things like that. Why was it amazing? They bring in um, speakers. Well, you get really down and dirty with cases, but they'll bring in the, the, the original detectives or the um, FBI profilers or the, the medical examiner. Mm. Um, I mean, you walk away with a bleak output on, outlook on life, right, right, right. But it's just the things you get to see. Um, it, it was it was pretty horrible, but just just amazing. They bring in people from all over the country to take this course, um, and just different. And I was looking at it, I'm like, God, if I was a if I was a screenwriter, I'm like, there's some good stuff. Yes, here. yeah, there's some really good stuff. It's good privileged information. Like you oh. have to have been there to hear have heard it. Yeah, that's right. I. Yes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, I don't want to ignore what was going on with you acting wise, but you know we oh, started yeah. to talk about the big movie you did, and that was really your first big movie, wasn't it? That one about nine eleven. It, you it was to? where I made the transition. I stopped doing. I was. You weren't uh, extra anymore. Yeah, I was an extra. I wanted to get my SAG card and. Actually, no. I had a couple speaking roles before that. Did you get your SAG card before that? Yes. Okay. Um, some writers of a cop show, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I mentioned the name of that project yeah, earlier. A, yeah, well. I forgot. But um, while I was still at Midtown North, some writers of a cop show came and did a ride along with us. Okay. And um, I had already been doing background work on their show. Which is why they're like, go, go ride with Mike because you got a lot to oh, talk so about. Oh, do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the, the executives at the precinct said, go, go ride with Mike. Um, so when we were done, and they were, and actually they 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 used a lot of what we were doing at the time. Uh, when when they were done with the ride along, I got a call from casting saying that we have a part you'd like we'd like you to play. It was one line. But it got me my SAG card. So they, they thanked me with that. They thanked you with that. That's awesome. Yeah. And the, the uniform's paying off, right? Kind of the, the Machiavellian plan is starting to take form <laughs> where it's like, hey, look at this. Yeah. There's a marriage here between these two. It really was. Yeah. And, you know, Machiavellian or otherwise, I don't know if it was, but it was just, it was, it was. A, no. I, I, yeah. I'm totally joking. No, but it yeah, it yeah. might have been. And, and I, <laughs> I hope I don't come off as like. So self-serving. You know, but, you don't come off as devious and mustache twirling okay. over it, but it's, it is fun. But, but, it, but it, cause I think it's totally understandable. It's like, why wouldn't you merge your passions and your career paths and the things you've invested in and the things you care about? Um, so when you did though, now start to move to the movie and this is a big studio movie. Yeah. You were selected with other not just NYPD veterans, but 9-11 veterans, right? Isn't that what they asked right. for? When they, they wanted to put together a core group of police officers, it was the story of a Port Authority cop, two Port Authority cops who get buried in, in the rubble, and this is their story. And I remember them calling me saying, we, we want to make this as authentic as possible, so we want to use only 9-11 responders. 
So even though we we're all playing cops, we had firemen mixed in there. We okay. had gotcha. different agencies. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, that, that sounds cool, I guess. Yeah. I didn't know what to think of it. Um, and again, it, it was a high profile uh, movie with, uh, you know, with a big director. And, and the original title, and actually, because I don't think I'm saying the name of, a, of the project, the original title was September. And I thought that's, that's subtle. And I, I liked, it was done with, this is not a disaster movie. I like, that's, that's done with some grace. And, and I'm like, okay. Um, and they said, you know, you'll probably start out as background and, and we're going to, we'll give you all upgrades because this is shooting in California and, and New York. Okay. I'm like, oh, this sounds okay. Let's do it. Did you, were you excited because it was an overlap between your acting and police work? Or was were was there a part of you that was like, hey, big studio movie, this might actually be really good for my career, just standalone, and then oh, the fact that it's a cop as well, oh, and it's not eleven, it's just kind of gravy. You know, I because it was presented so tastefully, mm. I thought. I'm like, uh, this is, this is good. We can help tell the stories. And, and this is a, her- okay. this is a story, a heroic story. Um, and I, and I, I did think maybe there's some real acting involved here. And, and, uh, um, you know, I always liked to say that I'm not just a, an actor who's a cop, you know, I studied really deeply for years and my, my degree. And I spent every yeah. day for years learning the craft of acting. So, I'd, I'd like to, you know, actually bring something to the table more than a, a uniform or the, the fact that I, yeah. can, I can hold a gun or <laughs> right. some, stuff like that. So, right, right, right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I thought this was good. I, I was a little hesitant because – let's cut that too. Cut that part? Yeah. You mean cut what you were about to say? Like not cut get what I was about here? to say. Okay, got you. Okay, yep. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll, call, we'll, we'll cut right there. Stop me if this is what – if this question would lead you to what you were about to say. Um how much do you want to say about the emotionally exploitive? That's fine. Exploitative part. So, so talk about the direction that you were given. What were you told was going to ha- was supposed to happen? What direction were you given to accomplish the, the, some of the, those scenes? And how did that play out then for you as the actor? We were never given a script, so we didn't know until we arrived. Oh what was going to happen on any given day. And I had a, a fair overview of the story and they were actually using the two uh, officers who were trapped in the rubble were also appearing in the film and they were, they were tech wow. advisors okay. and one was a member of the, uh, of, of the squad of police officers with us. So I, I thought we're in really good hands. It's going to gotcha. be done with integrity. And, gotcha. and it was, but there were times a lot of the scene. I really wish I were given a bit of a heads up because this was in and around the time where I was I was struggling with depression. So perhaps That's what I was, was wondering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, I went four days without sleep because we were we were. I was working midnight shooting this during the day. Um, interestingly, I was the transit station was in the Port Authority. So I would go downstairs and work for eight plus hours. Then I would go up and back and forth for four days until I literally collapsed in a chair and I, I just couldn't 
couldn't do it anymore. So I think a lot of that fed into the depression. But the scenes we were doing where they would say, okay, in this scene we're watching the you're all in the in the precinct and we're watching on TV, you're watching the planes hit. So for probably ten to fifteen takes, we watched the the the, the planes hitting. They actually put the footage they on. They did, okay. because they were shooting over our shoulders as gotcha. well. So okay. um was it multi-cameras? Did they have many cameras going at once? Uh, not at once. Okay. Usually you'll do, you, they may throw in a second camera, but traditionally right. they, they want one right. camera going at sure. a time. But um, I didn't know if they were going all Michael Bay and trying to do a bunch of different cameras all at once and trying to capture that. There might have been yeah. a couple. Sometimes they'll throw two, but they did, even when the cameras were on us, mm. they showed us the, the, the planes hitting. Okay. So... I didn't know at the time. I'm like, this is this a little exploitative? Is this are they? They know we're first responders. They know we were there, um, and they probably thought they were helping, right? Because maybe, hey, these guys aren't necessarily professional actors, right? Or not? They don't consider you professional actors at all. And they're like, we're going to help them out and give them the raw material so we get really good reactions and they give good performances. Maybe, right? yeah. I, I don't know what their intentions were. Um, but I started to think that uh, this feels a little dirty. Um, and then, like, it wasn't me, but they they covered, they had a scene where all the guys were coming back from Ground Zero. So half of us, they covered in dust. Um, luckily, it wasn't me. But they showed those scenes coming back. And some of us presumably didn't come back. Um, there was also a scene, and we shot this in LA. They show us getting off the bus and we we didn't the, uh, someone came up and showed us a video on a kind of laptop he said this is what you're looking at and it was people jumping okay um so uh so they didn't show it to you during the scene they showed it to you before before okay. and, and we were just looking up at empty sky gotcha but um they they every time we broke they showed us the the what we're looking at and they showed us a visual and, you know, you're doing this to the guy that was there, yeah, that was buried yeah, yeah. in rubble. He's there with me. I know the guy next to me. We worked at Midtown North together. I know where he was that day. And and I started, I, I, I don't think I could articulate. I still, I was, cap, I was, I, I got a little wrapped up in like the coolness of it. And, and in fact, the director gave me a huge compliment. He, he looked, he pulled three of us and he goes, you guys are from New York, right? Um, and he goes, that, that was really good. And I'm like, well, <laughs> sorry, but there's a reason it's really good. But I was, I was like, so good. Oh, the director just gave me this huge compliment. Right. right. Um, it wasn't until now, years later, I'm a little more established. I'm a little older and wiser. I'm not appeasing people just for the sake of getting a breakthrough job. Yeah that I can look back and even articulate publicly as I did on a, in an Instagram post like that, that was emotional exploitation and they, they shouldn't have done it. So I can see a young Chris Meyer doing that as a director before I entered the military, because you're going, yeah, the verisimilitude, the reality of it, you got the actual guys, blah, blah, blah. I can see it being well-intentioned artistry. Yeah run amok 
What do you think the takeaway is though? What would you caution people to do if they're doing that again? Do you think the moral of the story is, dude, don't use the actual fucking guys. Put actors in there. Because you don't, just because somebody's playing a butcher doesn't mean you have to cast a butcher. Right. Like, they're actors. Show them that, and you can have people as advisors. You can have people say, hey, on the day, this is what I was feeling. They can sit down and do a three-hour conversation like this. Right. There's a lot of things you can do without subjecting the guys that were there to it. Right. Is that the moral? Or do you think it's how you direct it? And because I'm just trying to think as the director, big budget, studio behind me, all the pressures that that entails, you're trying to get awesome performances, all in service of an ostensibly good story. Yeah, it was. So you're going, okay, well then I want some, I want this, acute degree of emotional truth. How do you get that then? What do you think? If you're the director, what do you do? How do you direct that then? Honestly, it's, it's a very, very fine line, even as an actor's point of view. It all depends on also the actor. Where does he draw it from? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I recently did uh, um, a show where I had to cry Mm -hmm. and I purposely drew from my own life Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I needed to, I needed it to be real. I wanted to draw from my own experience. So whether an actor's method is getting so enwrapped in, in, entrenched in this character that you believe what he believes mm-hmm. and that's possible. You could, that could be your, mm-hmm. your, sure. your method. Sure. I, um, actually there was the, when I, it was a, a show about a fire that took place in Chicago mm-hmm. and my wife in the scene was wrapped up in bandages Mm-hmm. And I had to cry at her bedside. So I pictured my stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. And it worked. I, all the tears came. So it, 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 I think a lot depends on where you are in, in your emotional stability. Because I was not in a good place. And I think even looking back, it was just the wrong time for me. If I was a stronger person, uh. I would have been fine with it. I could have stepped in and out of it with no problem. That one really stuck with me. And I, I just... You're right. It could have been approached with integrity or with good intentions, uh, but was but might have been poorly executed. I, as the director, probably would have left it up to the actor to decide. I would have, I would have hired an actor who could go there, however he chooses, but with with the emotional stamina to step away from it when it when, when it was over. Yep. yep. Um, I, I'm gonna name drop here, and, I, and I, I hate doing it. And I and I know we're not talking about projects, but I got a chance to work with Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. and she is so good, mm-hmm. and she gets so entrenched in her character that, like, the, clearly the situations we were going through never happened to her, right? But she was so entrenched in her character that her she believed that. It was happening to her to the degree where she said, if I, if I don't protect myself emotionally afterward, yeah. yes. she said, I will get PTSD. Yes. Because yes. your body doesn't know what's real and what's not. Right. Right. She said, I get massages. I go jogging because if I don't treat myself, uh, if I don't pr- um, protect myself rather, you know, you, 
you, you, and, and I said, you'll literally develop PTSD because your body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. And I think I was so new in my career at the time that I, I didn't know how to protect myself. And I'd still, I do believe there was some directorial choices that not everyone would agree with. Such as in, in in hiring the real first. Oh, hiring the real. Yeah. Okay, just yeah. hired. Yeah, good actors. Hire good actors. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. good. That's good too. Yeah, it's always good advice. That's the bumper sticker <laughs> takeaway. Hire good actors. Yeah, no. Well, it's interesting because per your Nicole Kidman thing, um, I all I I think sometimes stars get bad raps for being divas or whatever, but. I think it's to that point also important to go. Sometimes if they had an emotional scene, they're going to have to take extra steps just the same way. The star football player is going to have to treat himself a little bit differently than the guy that's been on the bench. Same way guys that just came back from outside the wire, just saw contact are going to be get treated a little bit differently than guys that were sitting on the fob stuffing their face in the chow hall. (laughs) Like, Every, whoever it is, that, the man in the arena, whoever it is that's doing a lot of shit, if you're in the business, your job is to cater to them a little bit more because they're going to need a little bit of extra buffering. And I think sometimes, and I'm not one to stand up for the elites or the Hollywood aristocracy and all that, but I do think there is something in the acting, in the theatrical profession to go, hey, if you're going out there on a limb emotionally, do what you got to do. If you end up blowing up at the director because you're just in an emotionally fragile state. I, I, I think of what Ridley Scott said when he was interviewed about uh, Russell Crowe after Gladiator came out mm. and somebody at the times, or I forget where it was, like said, uh, oh, isn't Russell Crowe very hard to work with? And he's like, all the great ones are. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? I mean, they're, they're trying to, I mean, he's the one carrying the fucking movie, right? Yeah. I mean, this is me saying it, not Ridley Scott, but I think he just said all the great ones are. But I mean, the implication being like, well, I'm, I'm asking him to go to these emotional places. So do I expect well-balanced, good equilibrium in his responses? Maybe not. You know, he's probably gonna be a little fucking nuts. Yeah. But that, that's because he just slew somebody in the fucking arena, you know, and, or a lion was trying to maul him two seconds ago. So yeah, he's going to be a little fucking frazzled. So, and, and I think sometimes to the, to the civilian in the movie or theater space, it appears like, what a fucking asshole. What a diva. Can't you just be like any other guy on the, on the, uh, you know, conveyor belt working on the, on the assembly line. It's like, well, no, cause you're not working an assembly line. One person is emotionally anteing up right. so much more right. than everybody else that you go. Yeah. All right. Well, they're going to be a dick right now. I get it. Right. That happens. You've worked at this point now with a lot of big talent. And all that. I mean, does that bear out in your experience? Do you see that, hey, if they're willing to go to a place like, what's your level of expectation as a peer with them in a scene where, you know, hey, you know, I get it. Like the camera's on them. This is their shot. They're being asked to ante up something. Right. I mean, how do you feel? Do you feel like, hey, you really shit on me? Like what's being a bad, what's being a diva in your mind? I've luckily only had great experiences and I've worked with even some people who are notoriously difficult, but I, and, and I'm grateful for that because I'm like, Hey, if, um, like if, if he or she can do this, 
You know, I, I even like with the, going back to Nicole Kidman, I learned so much from her. There was um, a scene we shot where I'm looking at her, but she's behind the camera and uh, and they could have put uh, uh, they could have oh, taped wow. they could have taped a dot to the yeah. camera to show me where to look. Right. But and she could have been sitting in her chair, but she stood behind the camera to give me eye line. What a team player. Right. Wow. Holy shit. Um so I luckily have I, I can't think of anybody, even um like I said, even some of the most notoriously difficult, they've been great. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And, That's and, really uh, awesome. I've I guess I've just been grateful, but and and I I I take away only the good. I and I can't think of anything really. That's incredible. Yeah. Let's talk about when you finally got to break out of being a cop. Yeah. Right? On screen. So, like, when you go to Mike's IMDP page, it's, <laughs> you know, cop, cop, officer this, blah, 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 blah. And then finally, the first credit that you have, if I'm not mistaken, where you're not a cop, was on a really popular show. Right? Right. And how did it... And, and you had a... I mean that was a pretty fun role to play. Oh, did you see it? <laughs> I, well, I remember it. Yeah, from the from the show. Oh, I mean, wow. when I saw it, I mean, I binge watched that show. I remember I was in Germany at the time, and I binge oh, watched wow. it. And the German censors, I had to use a VPN to get around to see it because the Germans wouldn't let it play on Netflix. And if you guys are wondering what show I'm talking about, IMDb, Mike's page, and look for the first role he had that was not a cop. And you'll see what it was. I didn't even know that. I would have to look. I didn't. Was it might not be in chronological order, but it was chronologically of when it was released or when the okay. show came out. I think is when it listed. So that again, correct been. me if I'm wrong. But no, it could have been. But I mean, uh, yeah. Did that role stand out to you though? Is is kind of a turning point? Of oh like, yeah, something new. It was the design was. I'm want. I need to build a resume and get an agent and get 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 in the union. So. If they want cop stuff, I'm going to give them the cop sure, stuff. My, sure. er, my early headshots, I looked like David Caruso and uh, NYPD Blue. Yeah. So my goal was build up the cop stuff. And then I can do, once I get enough resume and mm-hmm. I'm in the in the union I, and I have an agent, then I can start shooting for the other stuff. So um, it was a double win. And I, I remember joking because I'm like, I must look like the type. I'm either cops or I'm staunch Republicans because I started going for all these Republican roles. So that was not a one-off. That wasn't out of nowhere. Like you had been going for, because the role you played was like kind of a Bill O'Reilly type. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, was that the direction to they actually, say that? uh, Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck. Cause originally that's it was right. a, a chalkboard. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, they're really mimicking Glenn Beck. Yeah. Um, but that, but, but that was not the first time you'd been called in. Even for to audition for something like that, I had done some other stuff. I remember I did it an, an episode of The Onion, I think, before where I was. Oh. That's all right. We'll edit that out. All right. Oh. That's all right. That's, you did an episode of of a show. Uh huh. Yeah, I did an episode of a, of a comedy where I played a uh, like a Dwight type uh, character, oh, that's funny. and so I did. I did that. Might have been where I started getting looked at as other stuff. I don't know if I can. I think the onion I might be able to say, but but whatever. Um, I honestly I forget because auditions for me are a blur. You you read it no, and totally. then you forget it. Of course. So I don't. I, I I'm surprised that, that could very well be that that was the first non cop role I had. But in and around that time, uh, it, it was I had just gotten an gotten an agent, so I can actually 
articulate to him, let's just shoot for some other stuff. So he didn't even need to submit me for the cop roles. He, he still was. But um, I think we might have made a conscious effort. Let's see what else is out there. And that's a, that's a nice change of pace. That's a good natural deviation, and it's an interesting character to play. Yeah. Right? It's great for the real, right? It shows some, some stretch and some, oh, hey, you can also do this. And there's a lot of words and yeah. stuff to go with this. In, yeah. f- in fact, I'm trying to think, because some of the earlier roles I got, like I said, were because I did the ride along mm, yeah. or because I was a uh, first responder. Didn't audition for, the, for those things. This was also in and around the time where I was getting the roles that were not cops and it was by an audition. Where I got you, and it it felt great. Where I really went in with twenty other people who looked like me, and I earned it by good acting. Mm. That felt great. I bet that did. Yeah, I bet that did. Are you still with the same agent? Yeah. Wow. I had to think because yes and no. I I started with a great guy, Marv Josephson, old school. Ah, you book kid. You I'll tell him you can't dance at two weddings. No problem, and. Christopher Silveri, who took over for Marv, gotcha. is who I'm still with gotcha. this day. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great to have a long-term relationship like that in this business. Yeah. I am so grateful. Yeah. And early on, I wasn't, because he knew I couldn't, you know, take on series regulars or, or leave the, yeah. the, the, the country. I I he, I wasn't earning a lot of money for him, uh, especially early on, and he stuck with me. So I'm, I'm wow. always grateful. That's huge. That's huge. Um, what role really popped for you, really meant a lot when you got it. And obviously we'll speak euphemistically about it, but was there a role that really you were like, okay, <laughs> this, this, was a, this was a major turning point or this really leveled me up or something like that? There were a few, bec- and, and I loved, there was a natural progression to things. Like, okay, here's a, this is a one-liner as a cop. Here's this as not a cop. Here's this, this, and this. This is my first time with... Uh, a credit at the front rather than the back. Mm. So I, it's nice to look back and see a natural progression of things. But I think it was around 2016 or 17, I auditioned for a movie about the Washington Post mm-hmm. and the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steven Spielberg was the director. I can say that. We can say who the stars were, I think, too, right? Yeah. I realize that Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. They'll, make, they'll have careers in the business. <laughs> they're yeah. very good. They should make it. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was still uh, working in the chief of detectives office at the time, and they they cleared it. I'm like, you know, he's he's there's going to be three weeks. Um, is he free? I'm like, yeah, he's free. They NYPD gave me off, and I spent three weeks with uh, probably one of the greatest group of actors it was it was yeah. quite an ensemble piece it was um and then directed by steven spielberg i i felt like i should have been there delivering coffee <laughs> to the newsroom um but then again even when you've had jobs where you're supposed to be delivering coffee you always level up from that anyway so <laughs> this was a good inversion I mean, let me a- dance for you <laughs> uh, so yeah. it, it it was definitely a ter- it was it's weird i always hear actors saying it's humbling when, yeah. I think what they mean is the opposite of humbling. Like when they win an award, they say, I'm so humbled. Like, no, you're humbled when you don't win an award. But I, I'm starting to to see how that word can be used even when you accomplish something to be proud of. Because it was humbling in the same sense that, I mean, look who I'm surrounded sure. by. 
um, and when I'm sharing a green room with these people, and we right. we would just talk all day for, and this went again for. I would just do day players, but like you got three weeks on this. Yeah, it was miraculous. And then to to be in the same, not just in this, to be in the same room with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and even though I wasn't in the scenes for those three weeks. It was all in the newsroom. I got to sit at my desk and watch them shooting these other scenes just to see his process and to see the other actors. Did you, did you loiter on set just to check things What's out? That? Did you loiter on set? Just to, <laughs> I mean, like no. justifiably, like just no. to see and watch. And I wasn't loitering in, only in the sense that if, if I wasn't in the scene, I'm in the background because I'm yeah. at my desk. Okay, it was gotcha. a, it was a gotcha. yeah, I should explain. It's a huge newsroom. Sure, 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 sure. And uh, so if we're shooting in... Tom Hanks's office. I'm sitting right. at my desk, right. but gotcha. I even if I was in, the, I couldn't have been happier than if I was yeah. in that scene because yeah. I, I got to watch and then again just to see their process and like Meryl Streep stayed in character, whereas Tom Hanks didn't. He was able. He's one of the actors. He at least for this, I was able to watch him kind of snapping it out. But um, she stayed in character. But I, I think it was Steven Spielberg that I was. I was just in awe. of. What what were you what was most impressive about Spielberg to you? I I read the original script and it was good, mm-hmm. but then I saw the Spielberg magic that was added to the script, where it's not like let's just okay we show the printing press, but we show the printing press and the floor is shaking, and um, it's like you can almost like there's pixie dust in the air, but. Um, you can almost picture it through, like I used. To, I loved his movies, like the um, the summer of '82 with E.T. and Poltergeist, yeah, and, sure. and I was, you know, I was actually, I was. There was a great summer. It was that fall that went pretty right, bad, but right, um, right, right. Uh, I was able to to kind of see it through those eyes, uh, the eyes of a fan. But I, I saw what was added to the script. And I know that that was Steven Spielberg's input because it was just like a little touch of, of magic thrown into it. Did you see dailies on that? No. Did you watch the dailies? No. So you really only saw this when the movie came out, right? right? What about on set? Could, were you impressed with him on set? Was Absolutely. There some, what was special about him? What, what's In your experience, what makes him great? Forget about the end product, but just on set, what makes him great? We, his, he's got a, it's a business for him. So he's got a process. Like you'll come in and it was, we all, even though I'm, I'm a minor character in, uh, this could also have to do with budget too, but all of us were given training. I was, I played an editor. So mm-hmm. I was given several days worth of training just on how to edit mm-hmm. a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, just that level of detail. And I had to write the headline of of uh, the, the the release of the Pentagon Papers. So I he had me practice on just how to write that, which is great. And that's just one aspect of it. But where, where I'm going, the amount of detail, but also he knew exactly what he wanted. He had an assistant director who kind of do some staging. We're going to loosely, this is what it might look like. But he came in and he just made decisions. You're doing this. You're doing that. For the actors, like hey, for, for the actors, that. yeah. Okay. Um, you're waiting for this guy. Um, I had a question. It's like, yes, you, that's what's happening. I did. I did a, a take where I'm like, are we really doing this? Oh, and I exhaled. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if we should do this. And he just says, try it without the exhale. 
which is his way of saying, yeah, don't do that. Don't sure, do that. But sure. I wasn't like crushed and it didn't freak right, me out. Right, right, right. Um, and so then his he, bedside manner was his good. His bedside manner. And he yeah. literally, while he was giving instruction, he had his hand on my shoulder. And I'm like, Steven Spielberg's literally giving me a pat on the back. Um, I was, it can put me completely at ease. Maybe he's aware, I'm sure yeah. he's aware of, of his legendary sure. status, but he put me completely at ease. Um, but I, I was so impressed by the fact that he, his decisions were quick and uh, methodical. There was none of like, oh, what should we do? Mm. Maybe we'll try. It was direct. He actually, he used the old time. He didn't use his, his, uh, his thumb and uh, fingers right. to, to make the, uh, the frame. He used, um, I guess it's like a loop. Yeah. But he, he looked at the shot through the loop. Wow. So it was, there was an element of old school. Um, it was, it was, it was everything he was, and we, every now and then he would be telling stories. So a couple from the set of jaws, which I don't quote me, but he was talking about, Oh, when, when somebody came here and, um, I'm like, who am I? How did, how did this happen? Wow. It, was, it was just it, from top to bottom. It was just an amazing experience. So I know, um, I think I might've said this before on the show, but Sidney Lumet in his autobiography says that he always tried to make sure that his sets, this is his direct quote. And I always loved it. Cause I think it's the best way to run any kind of production in, in the theater or film space. They said the sets were always filled with laughter and concentration. Hmm. How would you characterize the set that Spielberg runs? I wouldn't say there was much laughter and it wasn't because it wasn't fun. It sure was, but it was very, reverential it was mm. even these are the best actors in the business and all of them were yes sir no sir to him wow it was and and also the material is is actually some some of it was was a little lighthearted um but but it was uh yeah you know what i maybe i'm i'm about to correct what i just said because there were there were moments where we did we did laugh but the 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 tone of it was was very serious and very professional it was very nine to five. Um, there was no panic. Um, again, to name drop, I had also done a, a Scorsese film and everyone just spoke at a very low volume. And it was as if like, okay, okay, we're now going to do this. Like you don't want to disturb the scene. You want to make sure everybody's like right there and we're all serving what's going I, on. There's just, it's, and I'm sure it's set by by Mr. Scorsese that it's just, this is the tone on one of his sets. And I've only done one film for him, but this is how we all, no, I'm sorry. I did too. I was, uh, I, I can't believe I forgot one, but and both, <laughs> sorry, were, we can't say what they are anyway. No, so it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And so both were exactly the same. Um, and it was just, and even we had the same assistant director on both the films, mm. the Spielberg film and the Scorsese film. Oh really? But the tones were very different, but Interesting. Every, everyone, it was like, we were in a library and even the, the crew moving things. And, and, uh, it was, it was awesome. That feels like a very actor friendly way to direct, to make it that reverential because there is something very disorienting about, Hey Bob, we need you to move that exactly. over there and all this. Okay. Yeah. Ready? Go. Yeah. You know, and you're exactly. Like, Holy shit. Like what? I'm like in the middle of a industrial workspace and I got to have this intimate moment. Exactly. So it seems like that would be a very friendly way. Spielberg wasn't like that though. He wasn't that quiet. He was more, it was, you said reverential. 
Yeah, only it's just it was just so professional. Mm. And I but I also think I mean nobody was like you know this I'm sure Animal House was shot under different circumstances, right. but things like that. This was all right. just so professional and I was really pleased to see all of the other actors who one might expect an ego from had none of it. And and again, I remember just seeing this some of the top actors in the world saying, "Oh, yes, sir." Um, yes, sir. And, and, uh, um, there's like decorum. There was a decorum and, yeah. uh, it was just, again, I, a lot goes on down to budget because the, the amount of detail, even if you looked at, at the desks, there were, there were, uh, uh, letters and memos in character within, wow. within the office. Wow. And he could also shoot in any direction without hitting, uh, uh, um, like a, a video village or a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you can shoot even up point in any direction, but and I'm kind of meandering around, but it was just so well done. And it was clearly designed by people who've done this many, many times before. And because he's done like war of the worlds, this is a walk in the yeah, park. Yeah, 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 this right, is about right. people and yeah. this is nothing. So it was very nine to five. Do you think there was something else to the fact that it was supposed to be a newsroom? So there needs to be a sense of camaraderie and therefore it's important that star or no star, you guys got to spend time together. Yeah. Like, right. Like, did he make, do you think that was a conscious effort to make sure that there's some rapport building? So we understand the hierarchy of the newsroom. Definitely. Interacted in that space. Definitely. Right. So it translates onto screen. In fact, we had, I think it was at least a couple days and it wasn't just me who got the the, the training on how to edit a, a newspaper, even like the little symbols that are used. Mm. But in the first couple of days, um, actually, I was they gave me the wrong time and I was late. And I walked in on the one of the one of the writers of the Washington Post talking to the cast. And as soon as I walked in, and they said, "Now he is your enemy." He's explaining the hierarchy. He's your enemy. He is your copy. He's your copy chief. So he's going to correct what you write. Um, and I sat next to this 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 woman, and she's very mild matter, and she's listening. And we all just talked about the different relationships, and and like you said, the hierarchy. Um, she's just in a baseball cap, and we're just talking. And and I just realized, oh, that's that's Jesse Mueller. She just won a Tony for uh, um, Beautiful the, uh, on Broadway, and, yeah. and everyone is just so down to earth. And I'm like, again, I'm. Who am I to be here? But um, we, yeah, we we received a lot of uh, well, not a lot, a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't necessary. We didn't. That that uh, was just an added touch. For all of this film and TV stuff that you've started to do at a higher, increasingly higher and higher level, what about theater? Have you done theater? Have you made it back to theater? I haven't. All the time I was a cop, I really couldn't. Yeah, you can't I couldn't take to the that. time off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I joined Equity, which was good and bad. But I'm now kind of pigeonholing myself to to. Um, I joined Equity when I was on the, on the job, so I couldn't just hop onto Broadway at the at the top level. I should have allowed myself more time sure. to return to theater at the community level and things like that. Um, but now I'm looking, I'm looking to do it again. I'm kind of, mm. I, I think it's time, but also. Uh, also you got a strike. So that helps too. Yeah. And, and you're, I'm, and you're out and you're not doing the job anymore. So yeah. Exactly. And I'm, I'm open to yeah. it. And I've had some auditions. I, I just read for a little shop of horrors. Oh, that's cool. Um, 
Yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm still taking uh, some uh, voice classes and, and acting in song classes, which are really paying off. I think they're they're actually very cool. Where? Where are you doing classes? Actually, I'm doing, oh, God. <laughs> Randy Graff, who was in the original company of Les Up. She teaches uh, of, of acting for in song class. So that that was not by accident. <laughs> I'm assuming. Nope. Yeah. No. In fact, all of my voice teachers have been in the show. But even the ones at Montclair State. No. I'm okay. Sorry. Okay. Except for no, those. just okay. the private voice teachers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, actually, except for one. But I wanted to to uh, sharpen my audition technique from in musical theater, mm. um, and I actually kind of lost. The way, I think I lost my perspective a bit, and actually she she helped me a, out a lot because I'm thinking, again, I'm musical theater to me was is these big grand gestures, and you're playing for two thousand yeah. seats, and yeah. um, she's the one that really kind of reminded me that no, acting is acting, and if the gesture comes out of your acting, that's good, and then it's meant to be, yeah. it's organic. Yeah, and I look back at her. There's a video of her performance in Les Rob, and I'm like, she, there's no grand gestures like I, I, I thought yeah. she was doing. And uh, so all of that, I think a lot of my training in the movie and TV, which is all on the job training for the most part, is interestingly paying off as that's now prepared me for musical theater because that's, I think, the, the, the style musical theater has gone is very... it's. It, it's the same style as movies and and TV, which is much more subtle, much more real. Um, either that, or I'm just thinking they're separate crafts when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's a hell of a testament to where your career has gone that you're getting Broadway auditions, though, and just getting your hat in the ring. Yeah. All ready for that, because, like we talked about before the show. Like who knows where live performance is going and what kind of growth industry that might be if AI takes off and all that, my own right. pet theory. But um, I've, you, I'm sitting here literally having angel and devil moments because I'm like, <laughs> do I keep this going? We've been going for three and a half hours. No way. This is fucking awesome. Who's going to listen to this? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Anyone yeah, listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank Your you. Your mom's going to listen. That's yeah, going to listen. Um, no, listen. It, but I mean, this is... I mean, but it's been, it's been effortless. I mean, this has been fucking phenomenal. It's so goddamn interesting on the police, the Leo side, the personal side. And then of course the artistic side, I can't end this interview though, without talking about Sentinels. So let's talk about that and where the idea came from and the execution of that. First off, did you go back to training, voice training in prep for the album, or were you already in training? Were you already going back to classes by that point? I hadn't, but in hindsight, I think I should have. You think so? Because really? I hear things on it where I'm like, ah, a good voice teacher probably would have pushed that vowel a little more forward and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But uh, are you happy with it? I am. Yeah, I am for the most part. I, I, um, it took long enough. Like I said a couple times, it took 10 years. So if I'm not happy with it, um, then there's something wrong because I had so much time to correct anything that sure. um, I am. And looking back, it, t- it actually tells the story of that 
the the 10-year period as well. So I have no problem with the fact that it took so long. I'm, I mean, and it's from a from a personal standpoint as well. I uh, it it it. I forget if it was even here before we talked or on here because we've been talking for so long <laughs> that it defines a period in my life. Yeah. Um, one of those songs I was inspired to record it at a funeral. So that to me reminds me of that funeral. You recorded it at the no, funeral? No, no, no. Oh. The, the song itself. It came from the funeral. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, I was like, God, this is such a beautiful song. I I kind of want to do something with it and, and actually was able to channel that that energy into something. Um, it's a really good focus when you just have creative energy that you don't know what to do with, because when you're producing and recording and singing and doing the orchestrations and the arrangements, it's so time consuming that, and I don't recommend it, hire, <laughs> hire, looking back, hire people for these things so you can focus on one thing, but it really allows you to, 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 to channel creative energy in, into one direction, you know, for where it takes literally, it could take a year for a three and a half minute song. Yeah. Um, I also didn't have the benefit of, of a full orchestra. So I outsourced, especially during the pandemic. I was like, all these musicians are home. So uh, there's this great uh, piano player, great guitarist, this great uh, wow. um, Julian Pipes player, who normally plays for the Lord of the Rings symphony. He's available now. So um, I was able to record remotely and bring all these people into, into one track. So for you, what did you know what the album was going to be when you started off on the 10 year journey? No. In fact, it changed direction. It was originally going to be all New York based songs it was going to be sort of a tribute to New York. Um, the title Sentinels, I was originally going to do Stars. Song Stars, uh, from Lamez Around. <laughs> the Lamez Around podcast, no, folks. No, listen, it, it, hey, it's what moves uh, you. You can't deny it. So it's much, right. it, it, it keeps coming in and out of my life. But I was going to do the Policeman's song. <laughs> Of course. Stars. Of course. Where, where he's a line, you were the Sentinel. So that's where I'm like, oh, Sentinels, that's what it's going to be called. Um, so that song never made it. So, but it did, it changed a number of times. And then I remember looking up at like these gothic statues and gargoyles all across Manhattan, thinking, like, that's so cool. I'm like, imagine the stories yeah. they could tell. So that sort mm. of became uh another angle of the title. And then of course the the people who watch over New York city, there's another angle of that title, but another long winded. It's probably why it's gone on so long. Cause my answers are so long winded, but no, they're fucking um, great. No, thank I, you. I got no complaints. No, Jesus. But, um, it, it did, it changed a number of times. So it's no longer a, an album all about New York songs. And instead it's about what would you say? I mean, Sentinels implies <clears throat> this is about, it's almost like a song for uh, an album for first responders, but that's me put it laying that on. What do you think it is? What was your intent then with it ultimately? Huh. For the first time I'm stumped and it should be an easy question because I don't want to turn people off. It's, it's just an album of big, bold ballads sort of that, Across the genres of Americana standards, there's a fair amount of Broadway in there. Mm -hmm. um, 
those who like big, like big Irish ballads, and those who are seeing like Josh Groban and Sweeney Todd right now, yeah, those are the people that are probably going to latch onto this. But I didn't think going in that it was going to be as melancholy as my first. Mm. Mm. But the response has been that it might be as melancholy as my first. I tried to make find songs that were a bit more inspirational. And this is where I say I don't want to turn people off because there's definitely an audience for people who like a little um, emotional music. Sure. Um, and I thought kind of some were stirring, some were, are, um, uh, like I said, inspirational. But I think one reviewer called it, a word I had to look up, lugubrious. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So even though it wasn't my intent, I, it, it's, that might be the perception. When you, when you stuck with the name Sentinels, though, for the title, why did you think that summed up these big, I won't say lugubrious, because that's not, I don't feel that way about them. I think big, um, anthemic, totemic, Ballads. Why did you think that summed them up? Ballad or not, I think the songs each kind of tell a story and have a perspective. Mm, yeah. And as someone who's watching over, it's sort of like that disinterested third party, like a, a fly on the wall to these stories that are being told. And I kind of felt that way as a cop. I'm like, how am I now just thrust into your life? Like, you, you, uh, Two seconds ago, I was eating a, a hot dog. Yeah. And now I'm in the middle of your drama. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's sort of like going back to those statues. It's I always said, God, the stories they must tell. They, they're yeah. able to look down over the city and just see a million stories, but they don't say a mm. word. It's sort of like the listener to the singer. I'm just, I have this window into your world on, on, on so many levels and uh, I'm just going to be the the disinterested observer. It's not crazy. That's not crazy. It's you a beautiful it. album. Well, thank it's you. It's a beautiful album. I, I I enjoyed. I enjoyed the first one too. Oh, thanks. I enjoyed them both. I mean, a lot of covers, but yeah. beautiful songs and beautiful selections. Um, tell everybody how they need to follow you, where they need to get the album, um, and yeah, anything else. Website. Instagram, sure. all that stuff. Instagram is a good place to start. It's Michael P. Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E. And on there is my link tree. And there, that you can pretty much get everything. But but Sentinels in the first one, which is called Songs of Valor and Hope, that's all on iTunes and Spotify and Amazon, wherever you get your music. <laughs> this was um, beyond a treat to talk. This was awesome. Well, I think so too, and I'm so grateful, and and, and I, I do feel like I owe you a copay. You want, <laughs> how much have they? It's been a while. How much have they gone up? Who are you to? with? Who's your insurance? I don't know. We got we got to <laughs> oh, look at boy. who that is. Listen, no, this is. It, I I couldn't help but ask the questions. It's fucking. Um, it, there's so much rich subject matter there. It's amazing you haven't written a nonfiction, an autobiography, a memoir. Um, but I love to see how you've mined this artistically, and for what's coming down the pike. Do you want a bonus story for those who have made it so far? Sure. Because I think it ties in everything. And it's a story that will kind of blow your mind that I haven't told in a while. Okay. When my father was first shot, 
71, 72, I guess 72, he received an award from President Nixon. And the whole family was invited to the White House where he was presented with this plaque. Wow. It's gonna, there's going to be even more wow in a second. I was a little baby, and I was crawling around the floor of the Oval Office. I know. <laughs> you should see the look I'm getting. It's going to tie it in with a few things. My Uncle Larry went under the table, and he's like, Michael, get out from under there. And he saw me pulling on a microphone. Oh, come on. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Just wait. He saw me pulling on a microphone and didn't think much of it. And Watergate broke about two weeks later. Come on. And for years, I would never tell that story because who's going to believe it? They would just sit there going, come on. No, we kept that story in the family. Nobody said anything. And then... Until you're on set with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. I did. Tom Hanks said, oh, come on. He he? He goes... Even Bob Zemeckis would find that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> he did not he, say that. He said that. That's hilarious. Because it gets even weirder. Because in 2000, I think it was 16, they released the Watergate tapes, the right. Nixon tapes. And I said, that's interesting. Because again, I wouldn't tell people this because who would believe me? Right. Even my Uncle Larry was like, I'm not telling anybody that story. When they released the Nixon tapes, I was able to find that interview. <laughs> I looked, I had, we have pictures of it. The date is stamped on the back. So I looked up the date of his, you get the date of the, uh, the tapes. I typed wow. in the date within minutes. I had that meeting with my family meeting Nixon on the, did it capture your uncle telling you to get out from under the table? It didn't. I, I wish that I, I wish I could say that it did. And I was, so he probably was like tugging on you. Like not like something actually, it was probably yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Wow. But we told that story in the family for years. And I really wished. I'm like, Michael, get out from under there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, there was, I was, you hear me crying a lot. Wow. I was trying to think, I must have been one or two. Um, but I, I thought that would be an interesting story to tie this all together. And a bonus for whoever made it this far. Seriously, that's an amazing bonus Crazy, story. Crazy, right? All right, let's end it on that. Okay. This was a fucking blast. It was. Thank you so much. Seriously. That was Michael Devine's profile in Havoc. In its entirety now. It's all done. You heard both parts. If you haven't heard part one, if you went to this episode first, uh, go back, listen to the previous episode. Um, I'm sure you will anyway, because you probably want to know how Mike got to everything that we talked about. But um, yeah, what a great time talking with Mike. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's selfish of me to say this, but my biggest takeaway is it's so much fun to go face to face with the folks we talk to. There's so much other stuff that comes up, um, so much more richer avenues that we kind of get into. And, um, and in Michael's case, as I said, that that wasn't going to be a hard bar to clear to begin with, because uh, with his life, it's uh, there's just so much rich subject matter there. So thanks again to Mike to coming on out to Cornwall talking and being on the show. Okay, we started off this episode by talking about our this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I now want to talk about our other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, which of course is my own nonprofit, but yet I'm going to talk about it in a different way because I'm actually going to talk about something that we are doing with the sponsorship of Second Mission Foundation. So both of our sponsors this week are collaborating on something in Boston on Halloween. 
Tuesday, it's Tuesday night this year, Tuesday, October 31st, in downtown Boston, just a half a block from the Boston Commons, at an exclusive private location, three floors of entertainment are being set up for your benefit. That's right. On Halloween, it is going to be the coolest, most exclusive. I don't know if it's the most exclusive. That's probably hyperbole. But it's going to be a badass event on Halloween. It is going to be Vet Rep's Savage Wonderground Immersive Art Show in Boston, titled Ghost Story. One night only of absolutely stunning, jarring, shocking horror juxtaposed with riveting, personal, tender, jaw-dropping poetry, stories, music, and live painting. Let me tell you a little bit about how this came about. I've been a huge fan of Nick F. Stathew's work across Massachusetts. Um, his, I can't stomach a lot of it at once or every day because it is so jarring and shocking, but his period horror pieces are just unbelievable. Um, but they need the right setting. And knowing that he and Ben Fortier were up in New England, I was like, you know, Ben sometimes goes there as well. But now, of course, Ben's come out with Phantoms. He's got all this great poetry that he's dealing with. I was like, man, there could be something really cool here that we should do for Halloween. And plus, you know, Halloween in Boston. I mean, that's a no-brainer anyway. Um, but we wanted to do something that transcended simply the horror genre. And when Amy Sexauer made the tactical mistake, that's a joke, of moving <laughs> to, the, to Cambridge, I was like, oh, yeah, there's so many other possibilities. Our buddy Iman Caffell's up there. Dave Camposano's up there. Um, it was one of those things where we were like, oh, there's so many cool people up here who we can bring together and who have a non-horror style. And integrating, interweaving their work with Nick's was a juxtaposition of horror with humanity. And it kind of backstops the horror. It makes it so much more than sophomoric or gore porn or um, you know some sort of adolescent sense of horror. Like it's got the weight of experience behind it. And that's what I love is that we're, we built this multimedia event. There's music, there's live painting. But a lot of you didn't know Dex was as talented an artist as she is. Um, she'll be doing live painting. Um, ben will be not just doing his poetry, but he'll also be playing his metal riffs. Like it's badass. And the location where this is, which we're not going to tell you until you are SVP, is three stories. There is actually a stage. But we're going to be doing this throughout the building, um, on and off the stage. And it's just going to be an awesome, spooky, riveting event. The show is only about an hour long. But, man, is it going to punch above its weight. It's going to be a, it's going to be a rich hour. Um, after that show is over, Second Mission Foundation, who's sponsoring the event, is they going to launch Iman Caffell's book, The Resolute Path. So it's going to be just a big party the entire night. And we'd love you guys to be there. But as you know, we love 
our exclusivity. We love doing things small. We love the intimate settings. So we have very few tickets to give out to this. It's going to be small and intimate. So that's the bad news for you. Although it's good news because if you get tickets, you're going to really enjoy being in an intimate space or with an intimate audience. But the other piece of good news is tickets are free. You just have to RSVP. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're going to hit you up for donations when you get there because this thing is costing an arm and a leg. And we like to pay all of our artists and all the rest of it. So we will certainly solicit donations when we're there. But tickets are free. And uh, we are going to have a dress code, jackets for men, uh, business attire for ladies, or costumes for both. You can always just wear a costume. It's Halloween. So we want you to you know, really live it up. It's a swank, swank event. We have an open bar. We have finger foods. It's going to be just an amazing, incredible night. And I, 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 part of me wants to tell you the location, but I can't. Um, until you RSVP, but it is an exclusive private location. Um, so we'd love to see you there if you're one of those that can get the tickets in time. Uh, again, to RSVP, just go to vetrep.org, V E T R E P.org, vetrep.org. While you are there, go ahead and scroll partway down the page. You'll see everything that's playing that vetrep is producing right now, and go ahead and click on, uh, Savage Wonderground Boss and Ghost Story, and it will take you to all the links that you need to do. If you're really befuddled and you don't know how to do a Google form and all that stuff, email us, call us, whatever. It's fine. But get your tickets now because there's not a lot of them, and um, we want you guys there if you want to be there. All right. So vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org for all the details and ticketing. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, who put this together before rushing out to get married and go on his honeymoon. So congrats, Mike, and thanks for slapping this together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Michael Devine for such a great interview that I really enjoyed the hell out of. And on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 